do it, Josh. And you better do it good this time. Oh, shit. I'm tired of being disappointed by your <laughs> lackluster intros and outros. <laughs> it's not for lack of care, I'll tell you that. Just lack of talent. Yes. Lack, it's lack of skill. Ah. <laughs> uh. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Nashville CA. Uh, I am, as always, your host, Josh. With me, as always, is my other host, Sean. Hello, Sean. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. Hi. (laughs) Uh, And today we have a very special returning guest, our first returning guest, I believe, here to talk to Clint Eastwood movies because my boy just wrote a book about Clint Eastwood that you can access on uh, Amazon.com, a real physical copy or preferably a Kindle one because uh, he gets a bigger cut of the proceeds, if you know what I'm saying. My friend Andrew Ford. Hey, Andrew. Hello. Yeah, you, I mean, you said it all. I don't have to. That's my one bit I was going to be like, hey, buy the Kindle copy. Yeah. You already did that for me, so. Uh, now I'm just ready to talk. Yeah, let's, uh, let's talk some Eastwood. Sweet. <laughs> I am, I have not, I had not seen either one of these movies. Um, and so I was very happy this week. Two brand new views. I had seen Play Misty for me years ago. Which, one thing I did not remember is that it's shot in Carmel, and I worked, I lived right next to Carmel for about a year and worked in a bakery, not in downtown Carmel, but about five minutes from downtown is where my bakery was that I worked at. So this was like going back in a time capsule for me. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, that was part of the reason um, that I decided, like I ended up writing about Clint Eastwood in the first place was because when I was living in Sacramento, I took a sort of a random spur of the moment trip to Carmel uh, and well, Big Sur and, and it was near Carmel is where I was uh, staying. And so I spent most of the time wandering around there and I was like, Oh, this is like beautiful. This is incredible. And everywhere you go, there's like, like I went to one restaurant and I was just sitting at the bar getting a drink. I think I was, I was going to a concert later that night and the guy was just like, just like the guy that was sitting next to the bar at the bar next to me to start up a conversation and he just casually was like, Oh yeah, I've done some business with Clint Eastwood, but I don't know him very well. I was like, Oh yeah, I guess everybody here. Cause he actually owned that property. That was that. It was like the, uh, mission Inn or something. I believe Clint was the honorary mayor of Carmel, if I'm not mistaken, maybe not in official terms, but I think, yeah, I think he, he did serve one term at least, mm-hmm. or at least a year of that term officially. Downtown Carmel has not changed much. So seeing him, I guess we're going to start with Play Misty for me. That's how it feels. So let's jump into that. Um, Downtown Carmel has not changed. It still feels like this tiny little village with the the tents out and the little bodegas and everything. The median right down the the road with the trees in the middle. Um, It it feels like it's straight out of the 70s still. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, what, re- what revisiting uh, Play Misty for me uh, for this podcast, it was interesting because I was like, I guess at the time I probably registered the locations that I recognized, but watching it again, I was like, oh yeah, I was literally on that street. Like I parked my car down there, you know, like to wander around these shops and when he's, um, and we'll get into it of course, but there's like a scene where he goes back into some shops and it's like an alley or whatever, but 
it's kind of where they're all connected and i'm like i know exactly like that area it was just it's just weird to like kind of be that familiar with a location in the movie i thought the for both of these the location photography was amazing like they serve as travel logs for uh carmel and then brandenburg uh i'll have to look it up in my notes um for the the climbing sections and the mountain stuff in both of these the helicopter shots that bookend play misty for me are insane like the zoom and then the move it's just for someone's first directorial uh outing it's just like yeah let's put everything out there and once again how how long had helicopters been around when they're shooting this like it blows my mind that helicopters are still a relatively new invention (laughs) 71 not not very long in 71 yeah uh but i yeah that start shot so cool how it shows the cliffside and then you go over the water over the ocean and then it somehow flies so close to his house that they're able to get a decent shot of clint eastwood's face from the skid of the helicopter wild stuff and uh while it's going we get the best like groovy scooby-doo 1970s font for the credit like early like it's definitely like late 60s early 70s like font like there was mm-hmm. a package that everyone got and that's in that package it was uh it's a, it, it kind of it kind of works perfectly for the movie but also is kind of weird i, I loved it <laughs> it's kind of flower power flower child mystery machine yeah scooby-doo is a great way to describe that and in those credits i saw that don siegel was in the movie i did not know that i was going to see one of my favorite directors acting in this movie which was insane but i guess he's also one of clint's favorite directors right to, to have worked with yeah yeah he always said he learned everything about directing from uh don siegel and sergio leone uh okay uh who made need no introduction but who did the good the bad and the ugly and you know uh kind of started clint eastwood's career but or kick-started it into like you know where he became a a, a mega star but um yeah don siegel was uh he had worked with Clint. He'd started working with Clint on um, uh, Coogan's Bluff, I believe, was the first time they worked together mm-hmm. uh, before this one. And then when then uh, they they had made The Beguiled around the same time, and then Dirty Harry, which is obviously like the big one. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think they were all uh, uh, good buddies. <laughs> it's also you mentioned uh, the the grooviness right off the bat, like. Clint Eastwood coming in hot with his own like fetishes of we, we have Carmel. Uh, the story was relocated from Los Angeles to Carmel to like fit his, his vision and the way he wanted to work uh, right off the bat. Apparently Clint is like, we're not doing second takes. Fuck a second take. We, we do everything and you just roll on it and it's great. Uh, and we get his jazz immediately. Like, it plays such a central role in this movie. It's amazing. And I would never, like, I know because uh, of years of, like, being around it, but uh, I, you would never peg Clint Eastwood as a jazz guy. It's the weirdest thing, and I absolutely love it. I don't know what I would picture. I'm trying to picture what I picture Clint Eastwood listening to. Uh-huh. I don't know. Springsteen? 
it's weird, right? Until you have to think about it, you don't you don't think about like, oh, he's like old. He's very old, and so yes. like he's listening to things that were like cool when he was like a teenager, you know, when he was younger, which would be like jazz and like like he he would go on to do documentaries about uh, several jazz musicians and um, on uh, he made a, he made Bird about uh, Charlie Parker with uh, Forrest Whitaker, and then he did. Um, uh, also, he did a documentary on Johnny Mercer, who's kind of more like a crooner type. But it's like those are yeah. the kinds of things like Clint would like. Elvis was after Clint, like after his taste in music developed. Like that's how old he is, and that's like the kind of stuff he likes. I was like, this is I don't know. It's weird to kind of dig into it, and then uh, watching it again this time, having watched through his whole filmography since. There's a bit later on that we'll get to where there's this whole jazz festival interlude, and I was like, I get, I get it now. I, at the time, I was like, this is this is extra. But now I'm like, yeah, it's it makes sense. he he likes jazz so much that he stops this movie for ten minutes just to hang out at the Monterey Jazz Festival. <laughs> I mean, if you can, you know, if you can, yeah. Hey, there's some fun people watching in that scene. Mm -hmm. All the people dancing in the crowd and stuff. There's one guy holding a baby that's one of the most sunburned babies I've seen in a <laughs> long time. I like to think you have. Do you have like a roll of that, like a mental like roll? It's like list of sunburned babies of recently. <laughs> well, I mean, in 2022, I feel like you don't see sunburned babies that often. People mm -hmm. kind of know better now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Oh, did you guys see the credit? Mr. Eastwood's wardrobe done by so-and-so of Carmel. Oh, that was no. just a very, like, he had his own tailor or his own personal tailor from Carmel, his buddy, outfit mm -hmm. him for the movie, it seemed. Oh, yeah. That the, makes sense. <laughs> the whole time during this, I was just like, the vibes are impeccable. This is, uh, it feels like a slightly bigger Columbo episode like mixed with a giallo or something like it is just these this shaggy 70s vibe that runs through it is just beautiful i the whole time i was like i just want to hang out with this movie i don't i don't want to be with these characters necessarily because i found everyone a little bit annoying or deadly um maybe toby like toby's kind of good but just i just want to be in that world i want to be there then and just be by the the sea i think it's so good you saying this movie was originally scripted for L.A., that changes the entire layout and feel and every single aspect of this movie. If it was in L.A. versus Carmel, like, mm -hmm. it works so perfectly that he's working at a tiny jazz radio station in the middle of the night. If he was at some big L.A. corporate headquarters radio station, I don't know, it wouldn't have nearly the same intimacy. Mm -hmm. It's got that um, uh, Stevie Wayne thing from the fog like you, you just imagine only a few people listening to this radio show but that's all it ever aspires to except for he does have a subplot where he's trying to get a show syndicated or something uh that kind of comes in but his commute to that radio station takes like half the day or does he just go drive around first like wouldn't you just drive around if you had that car yes first of all yes it's a badass car. Looks like something out of Wacky Racers. The uh, the way it's laid out, the way this the the area is laid out, like I just you can go like right outside of downtown Carmel, and it's like the Pacific Coast Highway. Like it's yeah. So he may not be going. Like it may seem like he's going further than he is, just because that's the 
the landscape changes so radically. The shift from Carmel and Monterey to Big Sur, it's it ha- it's such a gigantic shift in a very short geographical span, where you go from like civilization to just coastal boulders and mountains and trees everywhere and nothing else really. So he plays what is it, Dave? What's his last name? Uh, G. Uh, Garvey. <laughs> Garvey G. <laughs> uh. Because she says, uh, Evelyn, Jessica Walters' character, says Dave Garvey like 130 times throughout the course of this movie. Uh, but Dave works as the overnight DJ at a jazz station. Um, Called KRML, which yeah. I thought was very clever. <laughs> it's Garver. I just, sorry, I wanted to make sure I was... Garver, okay. So when we, yeah. And he he reads poetry as part of his shtick. Like, this he was he would have been what 40 41 when he made this movie i think so something like that yeah somewhere around there because i think he's born in 1930 Uh, he's he's 91 now yeah good lord if we work backwards he may have been like 39 or 40 okay people aged different back then huh god (laughs) he's 41 in this Uh uh-huh he, the hard 41 years <laughs> yeah I, uh not kind of a tangent but i watched um the greatest show on earth recently and charlton heston is in that and that's like his first like it's like his second big movie role after uh like a film noir he did called dark city but mm-hmm. um he is like so he's like in his early 30s and i was just like there's no like 30 year old dude who looks like charlton heston now <laughs> <laughs> like i don't know what's going on i mean I, I, yeah, I, maybe I do. I don't know. But <laughs> is it just like diet and cigarettes? Is that what caused everyone to age like that in the 60s? I, I think just there was less unhealthy food available, maybe. I don't know. Or just they're blessed with better metabolism. I have no idea. So, do you think <laughs> the preservatives in all the McDonald's we eat is keeping us like it's preserving with, us? Yeah. We have like adolescent, uh, baby faced. 20 and 30 somethings who can't grow a proper beard and uh <laughs> hey now hey I, sh- oh, I, I just haven't shaved there's a difference i'm not trying here okay great joke for the podcast listeners by the way <laughs> Wait, josh th- makes so many visual references <laughs> this is my, on this show this is it's my recurring bit <laughs> uh, um, speaking of recurring bits when we get to the bar uh-huh. first of all it's called What's it called? The Sardine Factory? Yes. Bad name for a restaurant. Bad name for a restaurant. I don't want to go eat at Sardine Factory. That place smells like shit. <laughs> but the the little game that he and this bartender have, and you think it's a game, but it's actually just a ploy to pick up women. Uh-huh. So these two are real sleazy. Um, but when we get introduced to Jessica Walter's character, someone called in earlier to the radio station and said, play Misty for me. And mm-hmm. she calls in again and again. She walks over to him at the bar, and he's telling his friend, careful now, be really careful, be careful, when he's talking about the game. But I love that as she's approaching, he's telling him, like, be careful, Uh be careful. (laughs) And of course, he's not actually listening to himself. (laughs) Uh, What did you think of, first of all, the bar and Don Siegel, his little outfit that he's wearing, like, with the the logo embroidered on it 
like it just felt like whiskey and cigarettes in that bar. I love it. This this would definitely be a local hangout of mine. Yeah. I'm I'm drawn to places like this. I just hanging out shooting the shit with the same local bartender as tourists and who and whatnot come through. Uh-huh. It's just one of my favorite things to do. Uh it's born to sit on a bar stool. Have you guys seen Jessica Walters in anything like anything apart from Arrested Development? Like Um uh, not I, I probably have, but this was the main other thing. And at the time, I, the first time I saw this, I definitely I, I think this was it. It was like yeah. Arrested Development, then this. I was like, oh. <laughs> uh, the only other thing, God, I I'm shocking that you have not seen anything. The only other thing was the voice she did for Archer. That's the only yeah, other right. connection point I have with Jessica Walter. That's yeah. surprising because she's so good in this movie. Mm-hmm. That is. Uh, it's the fact that she can play both sides of the um, attractive and then um, okay this movie is not the greatest for its depiction of of women uh, and maybe mental health issues (laughs) let's just get that out of the way (laughs) Uh, but she plays both sides of that so well I I think there's a there's a reading of the film that's maybe a little more generous to it than a surface than the surface level of like you know you know, bitches be crazy. Uh, yes. Um, which, you know, it did kind of, there was kind of a subgenre. Mostly, I think these came about afterwards. I don't know if this is a major influence, but like what Bill Simmons calls like the blank from hell, you know, like fatal attraction or like, uh, um, sync basic instinct. Yeah. Basic instinct, stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. and so, but in this one in particular, I think I, when some of this is because I watched like a feature length video essay that was breaking it down accordingly. But I did, I, when I initially watched it, I think I got at some of this, and it's in, like, when I was in the book, but I didn't know how to quite put it into words. But it does feel like she is kind of a vessel for Eastwood's own, his character's own anxieties about relationships, and probably Eastwood's as well. His, like, it's all the worst parts of relationships and, like, the one good thing, and it's like, how long can you put up with that? When the one good thing I'm, I'm, I'm assuming is the sex, because they keep, he obviously doesn't just quit, like, when he's had ample reason to just kick her aside. <laughs> Because she's acting like a lunatic. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's like all the clingy stuff and none of the good stuff. And it's weird the way... And it's like the uh, other love interest in, uh, played by Donna Mills, uh, Toby, she's kind of the opposite. She's all the, the good stuff and none, right. of the, none of the crazy stuff. But it's like the, any relationship is going to be both of those. And so it's kind of like, a, uh, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, you know, not quite a lifelong bachelor, but, you know, somewhat... Um, coming to terms, you know, you're just reckoning with the, the, the idea of like long-term monogamy, uh, in an interesting way. So it's, it's less that she's an actual character and more that she's like a, con- like a, a vessel for the main character's insecurities about, and, and, uh, hangups about relationships. And in that sense, it's a little more, it's still not great maybe, but it's a little more understandable <laughs> and it's not, it's not purely regressive, which is what it might seem like. Like it's not just regressive for the sake of, you know, regression. Right. I'm confused about not confused. I just want to know what Clint Eastwood's experience is because in both these movies, women are just throwing themselves <laughs> at him. And so I want to know, like, is this how Clint Eastwood experienced his life? Is this what he thinks of himself? Is this a reaction to 
not having good relationships. What what's going on in his head? Because women are just derobing themselves left, right, and center, jumping in his bed, jumping on his boat, like anything, man. It's wild. There's, there's, I think he, it's a little tongue in cheek, but it's uh, especially an Iger sanction, where which is more self consciously like a James Bond type thing with like the spy elements. But in the, in the play Misty for me, I mean, I also do think it's a little bit of his lived experience at that point because I mean, come on, probably. <laughs> it was also I mean, like the free love era too when he was his most popular, like first first becoming the most the most popular he had been in his in his entire life. Can I say he gets his hair. His hair is more dialed in an Iger. His hair is a little bit of like a Nicolas Cage bird's nest in Play Misty. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much hair or something. It's, but I, I have no problem believing that um, late 60s, early 70s era Clint Eastwood was a major coxman. Like, just, he's got swagger. The guy, he just looks like, yeah, of, yes, of course. Let's sign up. Let's become notches on that bedpost. Well, let's uh, let's follow it through to the to the mule in 2018. Yes, he's in his, he's in his late 80s, and he's having three ways in hotels uh, uh, that are provided for him by drug lords. Uh, I mean, the, mule, the, the guy just movie. can't. You know, he can't turn it off. <laughs> we should have talked about the mule instead of one of these. So. <laughs> um. So the, he. <laughs> He violates the first rule, which is don't stick your dick in crazy by. Oh, Josh. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well. I, I, I might have thought that thought, but I surely was not going to voice it out loud here. See, I wasn't even going to make you admit that you had thought it. I was taking the hit for this one because that's that's the mantra of it. Um, I mean, that is the reductive regressive version. Uh, but. Yeah, we come to find out that Evelyn stalked him to the bar, and already, like, she admits that before he sleeps with her the first time. Which, that seems like a, okay, well, thanks, and you're out of there at that point. I don't know. Maybe I'm a little too uh, of a nervous that, Nelly. Maybe, maybe meeting at the bar, it's weird, but whatever... I don't know, but when she shows up the next day with groceries to his house, which does she know? Uh, now, where did they did they go to her house or his house that first night for her sex? house? So ha she knows she just figured out where he lives mm -hmm. or stalked him, and like that didn't freak him out. I think it did. <laughs> I mean, for, 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 uh, you know, the, he just that that's the interesting. Like that's why I think it has more. Uh, like it, it it works better if you read it as like almost like a. A metaphor for your like an abstraction, a thematic abstraction of like, of of a of the, what the movie's about. Like you could have a guy just sitting there, like I don't know if I want to be in a long term relationship, or you could show that illustrated this way, I guess. Um, but yeah, for me, I guess we could all talk about our own personal breaking points with this. I would have been out. I would have moved uh, when she showed up with groceries. Uh, but you know, that's that's where I'm at in my life. How about the rest? How about you guys? I'm 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 freaking out as she, as soon as she shows up to my door with groceries. I'm freaked out. So that's that's my breaking point where I am out of here. Although it's I am grateful for the groceries because living off of 85 Heinekens in my fridge is not going to last very long. I might need more nutrition than that. Yeah, like when she opens the fridge, she's like, oh, you don't have any beer. 
<laughs> which is like okay well played uh what is up with the interior of his house too first of all like okay so much of this is shot in really uncomfortable close-ups which i think works for the movie but like i had no concept of you have to go in his front door and then out the patio door and take a left to get to the bedroom and the bedroom is covered in gold leaf and the kitchen is covered in tinfoil like is that a thing you're nodding like it's a thing no, I'm just nodding because okay. I was shocked by some of the things. That his bedroom opens up into a little courtyard, which is accessible through a tiny hallway that goes into the kitchen. Uh-huh. I don't know. I didn't have a great feel for what this, or like the layout, but I love the feel of this place. And we spend mm-hmm. enough time in this apartment or house to, to really dig in and notice some of the details of things. That kitchen, though. I don't, I've never seen metallic wallpaper. Never seen it. And not like that. It looks like rips and shreds and not like, um, you know, like full sheets. Like it looks like uh, someone just got high and decoupaged a bunch of uh, aluminum foil <laughs> to the walls. That, uh, that's, that's probably what happened. That's <laughs> I'm not going to say these kinds of things also happen at college, but maybe with uh, beer labels instead of uh, tinfoil. And you've got a very good idea. <laughs> Of, of what happens at college. Um, the There's a short little zoom. So, like, I was trying to pick up on any, the beginnings of any threads of uh, Eastwood's directorial style here. When they're arguing, there's, like, this very short zoom into Jessica Walter's face, like, that just kind of heightens everything when he... He goes to throw her out of the kitchen and she kind of turns and starts crying. And it's just really, uh, he shoots the action scenes the same way. Like a lot of his stuff is very calm and kind of um, more stagey and more structured in this era. But the action scenes, it's like strapping a snorri cam to somebody and just fucking going for it, basically. Yeah, I think, I think he has a pretty, like, it's, Otherwise, it's somewhat plain spoken, like just covered, you know, not not like, you know, shot reverse shot, but just like it's not drawing attention to itself in terms of how it's how he's covering everything. But then he mm-hmm. really punches in when he needs to highlight certain things like that. Or um, uh, I know, like jumping ahead a little bit, there's a, there's a bit where uh, he's holding her in the bedroom and we can talk about it again when we get to that, because it's an important plot development. And if anyone's following along, I don't I guess I don't want to spoil it. If you're listening already, you might not. Okay, maybe you yeah. can't be spoiled, but um, it just zooms in on him and then it and like on his face and then it dissolves to later and zo- and like yes. just the passage of time. He's just been there the whole time. And it's just the way that um, that that's done is really is really interesting. I loved that dissolve <laughs> because that dissolve is also. God, it's like. Uh, what's the term for it? coyote ugly when you're someone's sleeping on your arm. And you're trapped and you can't move and you just see him lying there staring into the darkness with this look of like existential dread on his face of like how the fuck did this happen to me that's such a great scene too when he but we i jumped ahead and i'm sorry i know we that's all right chronologically but the way that, where that goes next is so good and just like so chilling and i'm like brother i've been there Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so josh uh, if you're not out when she shows up with groceries are you out when she screams at your next door neighbor? Yes, that was my next note. Was just <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> she escalates 
so fast that it, it's like such a gigantic red flag for, to see her go from zero to rage-filled eyes and madness. And the I, this is the kind of thing that I would want to see if I was directing this. Right, uh, her ability to she turns to the neighbor and she looks feral, like. Her, her teeth are kind of bared. She's got crazy eyes. She turns back to him, to, to Clint Eastwood, and she blinks and it goes away. And she's kind of smiling then and looking all sweet. And it's like, oh, God, that's terrifying. And she does it in the shot. Uh, and her whole like her shoulders kind of drop. And it's just it's so good. It's a it's a nice morning. It'd be a shame not to share it like that. It's like, oh, like, yeah. Just the immediate pivot. Yeah. She's incredible in this. So Evelyn stalks Dave. Dave stalks Toby. <laughs> like, Toby has come back to town, not told him, not informed him that she's back. And he, like, tracks her down. I was kind of confused by this uh, little, like, little bit of shoe leather that was happening here. But what what art is Toby doing? She has an oxygen torch, and she's fucking with some kind of resin-looking leaf thing. So then Clint Eastwood shows up, and he's like, hey, I need to talk to you. She's like, oh, okay, let me come talk to you. She puts the oxy torch down, does not extinguish it, and then just walks away with a welding torch spitting flames into her house. I don't know what the hell's going on. Uh, I assumed that it's the, the same type of art that the wife in, what is it, Jaws 4? is doing uh the the big sculpture brody's wife the oh uh, not brody's uh, well yes. brody's wife but not yes but not yeah. chief brody sean brody or yes whichever yeah yeah i forgot about that yeah if you have if you have one of those uh you, you just leave it on until it runs out you can't turn it off <laughs> <laughs> we get that little bit and there's certain depictions of certain sexualities in both these movies that don't come across the smoothest in 2022, I wouldn't say. Uh, my note was, so we're meant to believe this guy is gay? <laughs> For the friend? It's like, just very flamboyant. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get Miles in the next movie and mm -hmm. his dog. and uh, Oh my god. Woof. woof. <laughs> woof. <laughs> oh, yeah, honestly, no, uh, knowing what was coming, I was I, I just glossed over anything in this that was yes objection. I was like, I, I know where we're headed. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and it, allow me to be the troglodyte for a moment. But there was something when growing up, like when people were allowed to say stupid things, you could immediately slot what kind of person they were. And it was very easy to be like, oh, that guy uh, said a bunch of hateful stuff. He's a bigot. <laughs> like, I can avoid him now. Uh, and I, this is specifically, there was a guy on Facebook that friended me recently who, perhaps unsurprisingly, I found out is now a, a, a cop. Uh, and he was one of the worst kids that I went to, to elementary school with. And even in elementary school, uh, there were terms that he used and things that he said he wanted to partake in. 
uh, he wanted to harass people basically at that point. And I'm like, Oh, of course that guy became a cop. Like the, the through line of this man's life makes total sense to me, even though I only know like the starting trajectory and this kind of midpoint, this all fucking makes sense. And if we were allowed, if everyone was allowed and didn't feel bad about saying racist shit, you could immediately pick out who's going to be a cop in the future, I think. <laughs> so you're you're saying we okay. You're putting forth yeah. the argument that we should be allowed to, everyone should be allowed to say whatever they want so we can weed them out? Yes. Or at least we know. Not, not that it's stopping a whole lot of people as of late, apparently. You put, do, you, do you want to put them in camps is what you're saying? Is that? <laughs> Just, yeah. Okay, so if they could be separate from us. Separate. I mean, equal, but separate. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep, uh, you know, I didn't. Uh, I was wondering what that shovel was doing in the background, but now I see you're just digging with it. Uh, so Toby, when they're talking, he's talking to Toby. And he's like, "Oh, I was dating this redhead. She moved back to Berkeley." And while they're talking, it jumps mid-sentence from her house to them walking on the beach. But their conversation is in the exact same point. Yeah, he kind of does that in um, in Iger Sanction as well when he's climbing with. Uh, uh, George Kennedy and they're going over stuff. It's it's uh, it works a little better there because it seems more montagey. But it's interesting mm-hmm. that he carried that over, carried that through the, both of those films. Because honestly, I feel like the movies he did, I guess Breezy kind of falls into this same category. But High Plains Drifter is like those are the two movies he made in between these. High Plains Drifter is very different, I think, in terms of what it's doing than either of these. So I, it's it's kind of an interesting contrast. Um, but it's and it's interesting to see what he what he held on to from the first film. It's and it's a common technique to like montage a relationship and a conversation, but there's like audio laps here that connect them. And then the conversation, it, a lot of times you'll do this and there'll be like logical breaks in it where it seems like they could have talked about something else, but here it's literally the same sentence. And I was, I pictured Sean's uh, positing of, uh, the children in the sound of music carrying the same note as they go from location to location. I just, he's in the middle of a word. He's like, so I was dating <laughs> this redhead from Santa Monica or whatever. I had that same thought. I was like, this is very sound of music, this jump. Um, so Evelyn's waiting outside the bar, calling the bar from a payphone. Super creeper, great bartender, lying for his buddy. But when Clint goes out and she's sitting in his car, not hanging mm-hmm. out by his car, this is the danger of having a convertible. So anyone's just going to be sitting in your car all day. That's uh, when, <laughs> when that moment happened, I said, what the fuck? Like the audacity of this woman. <laughs> I, I get that she is actually stalking him at this point, but seriously, that's, you don't sit in someone's car. That's not cool. He's still seemingly not too freaked out, though. Okay, and here's my theory. If this were framed slightly differently, it would be a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. Like, I can the, see that. Yeah, the amount of the the thin line between uh, I'm winning them over and you know I'm gonna murder their rabbit is it's very thin. Bradley Cooper as the DJ, Sandra Bullock as Evelyn. Boom, <laughs> rom com. 
I want to see that. I wasn't sure if everyone had seen all about Steve. <laughs> Why did my brain go to that movie? Of, of all the movies for me to recast, I want to remake What About Steve? <laughs> that's the one that's that's the one that's like the most it's like the romantic comedy that's the most surface level like they're crazy. Yeah, of, of anything, of, of you know, uh, <laughs> that was why I went there. I think that's why we both went there. <laughs> uh, also, even after she's done this, he sleeps with her again. Dude. I mean, dude, you gotta stop. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta stop with your. I don't want to say the word Josh said earlier. Did you say, <laughs> did you say Coxman? Yes, Coxman. I don't like that. <laughs> add that. Add that to the breakfast chili list of phrases I don't like you using. Okay. Oh, is breakfast chili a phrase you don't? I, I guess it makes sense because I'm I'm thinking about it now and I'm like, what's in it? And I'm like, you know what? I'd rather not know. But I've also no, been watching my... the Jackass movies recently, so that might be part of it too. It's my coffee because it's made with beans. Beans and hot water, just like chili is. Oh, now I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Um, uh, let's see here. Oh, in the morning, she writes another thing that at one point she waits outside his house and drops her coat and is fully nude in his front yard. Mm -hmm. And he takes her inside. They sleep together. This is where she writes ED loves DG on the mirror and lipstick and it's loves L-U-V-S. Yes. And this is the kind of saccharin stuff that one of my exes used to do and it it sent me running to the hills so fast I couldn't even tell you. <laughs> uh, his buddy, he starts asking around like, hey, do you think this situation is a little bit crazy uh, to his friends? And his his buddy says, I knew you were something like this is the way you were going to get got because he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And Sean, cover your Means ears. His dick. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> the sword is his penis. I you got it. Too. I, I, I liked that. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. That was really funny. Um, Jessica Walter gets some cool lounging pajamas. What mm -hmm. the fuck is this outfit? lounging pajamas it's it's like a tube top with a bare midriff with sleeves and pink yoga pants well and, and also she's like we had a date and it's like and and i got new lounging pajamas i'm in my lounging pajamas for the date we had i'm like wait what <laughs> i'm i'm like so you he was just gonna come pajamas? over yeah no. <laughs> she calls him buster blue eyes and i was like "Ooh, that's very close to buster bluth <laughs> oh uh is this where she shows up at his place in the middle of the night just just screaming <laughs> and then uh uh he calms her down and she goes to wash her face um i think i think there's like they're all kind of there's like there's like three i think two two or three different ones because there is it the one where because he doesn't see her for a while because he goes back and talks to toby Mm -hmm. she's stalking he and toby under the tree they're at down by the beach and yes. you get that long shot where she's in the background standing there looking crazy which was i i really dug that foreground background thing of her back there okay what kind of zoom lenses were they using on this because there are some amazing like the one in the opening into his face uh this one where it's like 
she's half a mountain away. She couldn't actually be stalking them because like in person, you'd be tiny, but with that zoom lens connecting them, it's so, it's so cool. Like, I just think it's a really neat, very seventies kind of thing. You don't get a lot of cool zooms these days. Uh, So when she shows up at his place, uh, I don't remember what happens, but when she's, she's yelling, it's not true. It's not true. Yeah, like it's like she has this rage mixed with like vulnerability and insecurities. I, I'm just blown away by her performance. And this is where she then goes to the bathroom and uh, cuts her wrist. Mm-hmm. Um, the the fact that she has both of those going at the same time, I feel like I don't know if the movie is necessarily better than something like. Um, uh oh Andrew mentioned it earlier fatal attraction uh because she in fatal attraction she seems like angry the whole time she doesn't have that really that the brokenness as much she's much more jagged of a character and here you're just like this woman needs help like underneath the the danger there is this thread of like I I kind of want to help her Fatal, that's Glenn Close and Michael Douglas. Mm-hmm. Okay, I saw that one last year. Yeah, that that's interesting. She does seem more conniving in Fatal Attraction. Yeah. Whereas this seems more like just somebody's brain has gone haywire. Which is weird. Like, I would, uh, I would make the case that in Fatal Attraction, like what she does here, I mean, again, like you're saying, like maybe she's more like mentally not, not well. But uh, I think there's more like in Fatal Attraction, I think she does less to deserve what happens to her, I guess. Like ultimately, like, I mean, she's she obviously crosses the line at the very end, but like yeah. up for the like she rides the line of like, this is reasonable for a lot longer um, than uh, Jessica Walters character does here. Um, and a lot of the time in Fatal Attraction, you're like, Michael Douglas, just you fucked up, dude. Like you fucked yes. up, bro. <laughs> um, and in this one, it's, it's it's less of that and more like. You're just you. It really strings your lawn, and you're like, "Is it how long is he going to go along with this?" You're not worried on Clint Eastwood's behalf because it's Clint Eastwood, which I think gives it an yeah. interesting dynamic too. Because in Michael Douglas's case, it's different because he has things he you know he doesn't want to lose. But in Clint Eastwood's case, like it's just kind of like there's less at stake, weirdly, which kind of I think pushes it more towards the abstract reading than mm-hmm. the literal reading. But um, I thought I thought that was interesting, an interesting like just a different way of exploring that the subject matter. I just think also Clint Eastwood is so much more likable than Michael Douglas. So Michael yeah. Douglas just has that asshole character and he's great at playing an asshole character. But I don't recall any Michael Douglas roles from like, oh, did you see? I love Michael Douglas. He's so great in that. And like, I just want to hang out with him or that guy, <laughs> Gordon Gecko. Like, no, he's just a dick in every movie, it seems. The guy from uh, <laughs> Falling Down, you weren't a fan of? You don't want to get, don't want to get beer? <laughs> You know what I? When I first saw that movie as like a twelve-year-old, I was like, "Yeah, falling down, fuck uh-huh. all these people, fuck McDonald's, you can't get breakfast." Then, and then you become an adult. It's like, oh no, no, that guy's a maniac. <laughs> falling down is is proto Joker, right? Like, yes, we we live in a society kind yeah. of totally. very very angsty observations from adults who should ostensibly know better. I think if Joker had had old man Robert Duvall tracking down Joaquin Phoenix the whole time, that movie would have been a lot better. 
93 year old Robert Duvall chasing him around the city. Uh, so this is where we get that shot, Andrew, you talked about earlier of the cross cut on Eastwood's face as after she's recovering from her wounds and she's lying on his arm in bed. So, so she's nearly killed herself and she's recouping at his house. Authorities in this town. I don't know what they're doing. I, I don't know what the medical and police authorities are thinking. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think the one cop, like, comes over, just hangs out and, like, has a beer at one point to, like, catch up. Yes. Like, it's very weird. Like, that's, again, that's the kind of thing that doesn't work if it's not Carmel. Like, you kind of buy it because you're like, this is a strange, wild- beautiful wilderness town. Like, I don't know what this is. Well, this detective must be bored off his ass working in downtown Carmel. Like, mm-hmm. nothing happens here. So I'm just going to go hang out with this DJ and talk to him about his stalker for a while. That's, uh... I did. I really like that character, and he uh, shows up again. He's in. He's the one who's in Dirty Harry, isn't he, Andrew? Um, I believe so. I'd have to double check. Um, yeah. I've seen him in a bunch of things, though. Yes, um, but they're a little thread of this kind of antagonistic friendship, where the uh, the police officer is like, "Yeah, I've listened to your show, and I don't like it." <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't like jazz. I like Montevati. Yeah, if if uh, if we had a TV, uh, you couldn't. Uh, you'd have to break my arm to turn your show on. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but they don't have a TV at the station. Yeah, he, confirmed. He is in Dirty Harry. Uh, okay. with Eastwood. That he the sergeant has a great line where he asks him to play Montevati or whatever, and Clint says, "I didn't know you were such a fan of the show." And he goes, "I'm not. I just like yeah. Montevati." Yeah, <laughs> which is like. Uh, dinner music kind of stuff. Very much the, uh, once again, back to capital R romantic music. Um, wh- <laughs> how did you guys feel about the housekeeper? I, I she's love great. Birdie. Birdie <laughs> is so funny. I love that she gives him shit for everything about like his drunkenness and him being a coxman. And I, I just love the attitude that she gives him. Yeah. I think that that's a running th- thread uh, in both of these movies, I think is that, I mean, granted there's some complications in the next one, but both uh-huh. African American uh, women that are uh, in the movies are uh, fantastic characters who like give like better than they get. Like they, they, they take shit from Eastwood, but then dish it right back to him. You know, uh, yes. it's really like, um, I mean, I don't know that it's like exceptional for the era because this was like the heyday of black exploitation movies, and there were a lot of like um, a lot of filmmakers like Melvin Van Peebles and uh, uh, Gordon Douglas uh, making you know more progressive things uh, and and you know giving a bigger spotlight to black performers that they didn't have before um, the, the civil rights era and Sidney Poitier, and um, uh, it's basically just it's it still feels novel to see something because a lot of them uh, uh, there are pl- still plenty of other movies in the 70s where this doesn't happen especially you know a Clint Eastwood movie you don't expect it I don't think at least given the general you know opinion of him uh, cultural opinion of him as like an old uh, conservative fogey which is kind of inaccurate <laughs> okay so I, I made a note of this during the jazz festival and I wanted to bring it up but you broach the subject now so let's start Pinning Eastwood down, like, to a political leaning or any kind of value system, like, 
both of these movies, like you said, have very strong black female characters. Uh, not only that, he gives a good seven minutes of this movie over to black joy to a, a celebration of what is, you know, considered like it's a black art form, jazz music, especially in the way that it's presented here. And the audience is primarily people of color. And he just lets his camera take all of these people in and show us them like dancing and grooving and, and hugging on each other and just all this happiness. And it feels at the time, like it would have been something pushing the boundary in a mainstream film. Uh, not a black exploitation film, not something uh, that would, could be swept under the radar. Like this is Clint Eastwood, our guy, and this is the scene that he's into. Like I, I thought it was great in this film, but he becomes very wily and hard to peg down with regard to like what is his actual thought process with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, th- I, I definitely think, uh, and, and also his uh, uh, coworker uh, slash friend character. Could you know nowadays if you know it, it's easy to say like oh that's like the black best friend trope but here it, it like he's actually more uh suited like Eastwood's kind of like invading like his net like his space like of working at like the radio station he feels more comfortable there like he moves mm-hmm. through the whole world more comfortably than Eastwood's character does and then yes. like when they go to the um they go to the jazz festival together um and to 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 jump ahead to that as well like um it's also like. It, it it really cannot be overstated how little bearing it has on the plot. It is just like the fact like that. That's part of the thing that you're saying, like he gives the movie over to that, um, which I think I think is interesting. And I think um, it is a, it is a, a complicated relationship over the course of the rest of his career with like, um, I think, with with po- with political like arguments and stuff. Like, obviously, he has the infamous speech at the RNC where he gave sort of a half-hearted pantomime routine with the chair that was supposed to be Barack Obama or whatever. Um, or, and, uh, and then if you watch that whole clip though, it just turns into the Republicans saying like, uh, like basically just like goading him into saying his catchphrase, like go ahead, make my day or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you kind of, there's this tension there where I think, and weirdly this came up when I was reading a book about David Lynch of all people the other day, David Lynch, who uh, I think who voted for Reagan and loved Ronald Reagan and is a fiscal conservative and nobody mm-hmm. talks about it because they don't want to think about that. But it's, you know, I mean, he's not, I don't think he didn't vote for Trump or anything like that. I don't think. And I don't, I'm claims would probably did. I don't know. Uh, I mean, uh, but, uh, I think, it, I think it's, it does get harder to peg down because those issues are, I think the issues that he likes about conservatism, it is kind of like old fashioned conservatism, which is not, is not objectionable on the surface. Like, it's like, we just like less of things and it doesn't have anything to do with race. But when you bring Mm -hmm. race into it, I don't think they, I don't think he's someone that follows the party on that, down that line. But what do you think of a movie like Gran Torino, where he's just trying to like, I start this movie as a racist old man. And then by the end of it, I learn that they're people too, essentially. I, I don't, I don't know if that's him carrying his beliefs around or if that's just the character, but he seems to play crotchety racist old men fairly frequently from the from the last decade or so the last 15 years of his career well i mean i will say that in the mule he has the the very uh 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 telling and i think progressive line uh where he says uh you're welcome dykes uh (laughs) really uh really bridging the bridging the void there um 
No, it's more of like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing. And we'll get into some of it with like the Iger sanction. There's there's a, a sense of humor to the Iger sanction that is no different for me than like South Park, where it's like, we'll just defend everybody. And it, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of what it is, basically. It's like every everything's fair game because and, and, you know, in both directions, like you can poke fun at me and I'll poke fun at you. And if you actually do something bad, that's when, you know, and we can get into more of that when we get into that movie and what happens with uh, with Miles. And his uh, lovely little little mutt. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So during the night, while he's asleep, Evelyn takes his car, goes into town, copies his house key. Still not freaked out about the fact that his car is gone. But she gets back, and now he has the meeting at the restaurant with the old lady who's going to take him national or something on the radio. Yeah, and uh, one fun note is, uh, I mean, there's an insert shot of it, so you guys might have caught it, but it is a Malpaso production on the uh, oh, on the mail piece tape. of mail, the envelope he has everything in, which I thought yeah, was a nice touch because nice. that's his obviously production company. So it's a little, uh, a little knowing reference. Um, so he's on this lunch date. Well, it's not a date. That's the the gist of it. <laughs> that, it's just a business meeting. This I, I misunderstood. Me just like Evelyn did. I love that Evelyn shows up and it's like, she's a little old for you, don't you think? <laughs> you think he's on a date with this lady? Yeah, this this is the part where I'm like, I'm throwing hands. Like, this yeah. is too, this is crazy. <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm calling the police. Like, you're going away. What is it? She says, like, what is it? Be nice to seniors week or something. <laughs> Just like, oh my god, she is. Uh, in my notes, I just wrote, she's real mean here. Uh, <laughs> it's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> so, how often do you think cabbies have to deal with this? Like somebody getting shoved into the back seat, just like get her out of here. Where do you want me to take her? Anywhere. Just get her out of here. <laughs> That's uh, in in my nine months as a cab driver, I never once had that. I'll tell you that. You drove cabs? Yes, in Colorado Springs. You have not told me this. I am multifaceted. Were there any uh, taxi cab confessions or anything like that? Um, there was a lot of puking. That's a form of confession, I guess. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's like it's like a purging of the sins. <laughs> <laughs> I did drive a lot of strippers around. Like that was fun because they always tip that really is well. Fun. Yeah. A lot the, of singles. The, yes. <laughs> uh, the strippers and the guys from the army base. Um, the guys from the army base would tip really well on the day they got paid. But like these young dudes who would get a chunk of money, have nothing to do with it. And then you just drive them to the mall and then they come back out like loaded down with new shoes and shit. Uh, and then like go to the strip club. Like they tip really well that first day. Then if they have to do anything else in town, nothing. Like you get nothing out of them because they blew all of their wad that first night. Uh, phrasing. <laughs> God. <laughs> well, you think you think the army would let them like you know have like some rental cars for them? You know, I don't know. Maybe I think, think too much of our military. <laughs> <laughs> providing for pr- providing for our boys. Uh, on the on the front lines, well, you know, or in Colorado Springs, yeah, or front in lines in Colorado Springs. Ah, <laughs> uh, Birdie shows up to the apartment, and it's completely fucked and torn up. 
which she then hears noises and Birdie goes to investigate like all good horror movie characters do. Uh-huh. You hear scary sounds and you just walk cautiously over there to see what's going on. Uh, what do you think of the stabbing sequence? It's there's a lot of slashes and stabs going on. It's upsetting. Like it is. Uh, I've noted when she slashes her, the camera work is super chaotic. It's all up in their faces and the way that's almost impressionistic, like you cannot get a hold of what the action actually is, but like there's a big arm slash and then a slash of red. And then it's like on Bertie's face as she's screaming as she's being stabbed. Like it's really unsettling for not being overly graphic. Yeah. I, th- I think he, he's always had a facility with violence that like hits hard, even though you don't, you don't see as much as you think you do. Like, like, uh, like you're saying, like you don't, sh- they don't, sh- he doesn't show a lot. But um, I think this might be a good, as good a point as any to bring up the, apparently John Cassavetes said, the only problem with this is that it doesn't have Hitchcock's name on it. So he really liked the movie. Um, oh, nice. And this is the kind of thing that uh, it definitely, and, and, you know, there's the Universal logo from this era, which was also in front of all the Hitchcock's movies at the time. And, you know, where Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock Presents was shot was like a Universal production and all that stuff that Psycho House is on a lot. So I always kind of associate Hitchcock in this era with Universal anyway. But then, yeah, and obviously the slashing, it, it does have that kind of feel of uh, a little a little psycho-esque in terms of the, the rapid cutting and the uh, impressionistic editing that gives you uh, gives you the implicate gives you the idea that you've seen more than you actually have. Stabbing in movies now has gotten so brutal and over the top. It's kind of quaint to watch these knife scenes or. Uh, the intro to the Iger sanction with the, that throat slit that we get later. Mm-hmm. It's comparing something like that to, I don't know, the throat slit and high tension is something we've mentioned before. Uh, like just the amount of gore and effects and blood and just everything. The camera stays on cuts longer. We see the wound open and then the blood pour out like it's kind of comforting sometimes to go back to these older movies where it's like, okay, this is like theater style violence, right? This is something that you would see on a stage. Mm-hmm. The red of this blood, like the, this is where it made me think of a Giallo, like that fake paint looking blood helps, uh, but it's still like kind of upsetting on a, a visceral level, I think. Um, but there was a spate of movies, I feel like maybe uh, 10 or 12 years ago, um, where there were very intimate stabbings in them. And like, makes me feel like I need a shower afterwards. Um, I don't want to give spoilers, but there, there's a couple that there's some climactic stabbings. And uh, it always, it's, it's like a home invasion. It feels so personal. Uh, I don't like it. Now I want you to spoil these movies without spoiling them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm thinking of uh, uh-huh. Saving Private Ryan. Is the- Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, that's the one. I was just about oh. to say that's the most brutal. That was like the one where I saw that movie as a kid and that fucked me up. It still gets me. It's still tough. It's it's so bad. It's, oh, God, it's such a bad scene. Yep. In a I, great way, but it's just so hard to watch. I think that one, actually, because it is a war setting, it's not nearly as traumatic or upsetting for me as these others to which I am alluding, which are more uh, home 
settings, like very intimate, um, safe spaces. Yeah, it's a I, for me. It's like it's a it's a the the idea that in Saving Private Ryan that it's a Nazi and a Jew specifically yes. battling like, and it's like that close quarters thing. Uh, that's what the, the, the larger implications of it all. And like, you know, the, and, and, you know, who's making the movie and why he's making the movie and why he made, you know, what his career has been like and all that stuff. Uh, it, 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 all that kind of compounds all of it too, to be like, I can't believe he's doing this in this movie. Like it just makes it that much harder to watch. I forgot that was, uh, the Jewish character in that movie. Yeah. Oh, God damn it. Uh, Birdie survives the attack, which surprised me. I thought for sure she was dead. Uh, when Dave shows back up at his house and he's like, get out of the way, buddy. I live here <laughs> and shoves his way past the, the cops. Um, the detective says your girlfriend, there's an optical zoom in like the film grain gets bigger and you can tell that they did it in post. Um, like that's straight into Clint Eastwood's face as he's like, is she my girlfriend having this realization? <laughs> And then they send her to a hospital and everything's fine. Dave thinks everything is okay at this point because they sent her away. He's like, ah, I'm going to go about my life. It's fine. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. I, so after this, the movie slows down r- real hard. <laughs> once, she, once she gets arrested, once Evelyn is out of this movie for a minute, things come to a grinding halt, which if you're into the feel and cosmic, cosmetics of this movie and everything i think you'd really dig this part we got like making out in a waterfall fucking on the forest floor we got the monterey jazz festival um silhouette sex scene we i mean we got it all here Mm -hmm. and it looks incredible like uh andrew and i i am still waiting to have silhouette sex maybe (laughs) maybe one day uh andrew and i talk uh, a lot when we're working on things about like doing a gear shift in a movie. And normally it's when you're taking one heightened situation and going into another heightened situation that's from a different genre. This is like just backing all the way down into first <laughs> type of shifting. <laughs> like <laughs> almost parked. They yes. almost parked this movie. We're just, a, and it, uh, the thing is, I loved this sequence for the look of it. Um, listening to um, the first time ever I saw your face, like it's a great song. You know, I don't care what era it's in. That's a great song. Um, I'm fine with there being two music videos in this movie, basically, but it does deflate the tension just a little bit too much. That sunset kiss, though. Yes, man, that was a shot and a half. Huh? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I was, uh, I was yeah, I, I honestly jealous thought, of that. So there's a helicopter shot towards the end of this sequence where he and Toby are hanging out on the beach, lying down, and helicopter kind of pulls back. I thought the movie was over. Honestly, I was like, <laughs> all right, I guess, I guess that was we solved the conflict of the movie. She's been arrested. Let's all go home now. But it's not done because at the end of the sequence, we get Jessica Walters, Evelyn, uh on the phone calling him again. And when she like, he's shot very normally for the, for the conversation. She is like barreling the camera. She's like straight down the lens. Uh, and it's so close up in her face. It's, it is really disturbing and it's all on her performance because it's just one close up shot. Um, 
and she's doing all of this. Her eyes, like she's looking at you, but also kind of glassed over, like she's completely in a different place. And she tells Dave that she's going to go to Hawaii. Is that her? Yeah. Her so, cover oh, story. Everything's better now. I got a new yeah, job in better. Hawaii. I feel better. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really sorry about almost killing Birdie. That's one thing that hurts this movie for me is that nobody seems to give half a fuck about the fact that Birdie it almost died. The cops, Dave, nobody cares. They're just like, oh, but Evelyn's she's she's a little nutty, you know. That's just what happens. To be fair, the cop also uh, tells Dave, uh, you know, hopefully we'll catch her next time before. And Dave's like, before what? And he's like, eh, before she kills you. <laughs> just kind of like, you know, hopefully, maybe we will. I mean, that cop was foreshadowing. Yes, because, he was. Uh, this pillow stab, I was convinced this was a dream sequence. Until I was too. it wasn't. That he was she's standing over him he rolls his pillow gets stabbed he like confusedly nonchalantly rolls out of bed slowly gets up and i'm like all right so he had a dream but then the cops are there whatever the knife is in the pillow and she's vanished and it was all real um she also calls the radio station and she quotes a poem this time uh and he doesn't know where it's from, which I really wanted this like through line of Clint Eastwood as secret intellectual. Like, not only is he a great outdoorsman, he's a fantastic lover of the ladies. Um, he's he knows everything about jazz, but he also he knows a lot about poetry too. I <laughs> I just like that he is he's everything to everyone, but he doesn't know what poem she's quoting. Right. Um, and then, which is, uh, it turns out to be the, the name of um, uh, Toby's new roommate. Okay. Or did I jump ahead too much? I don't think so, because that's my next note. But my actual note was, holy shit, that was a good twist. Because <laughs> <laughs> I did, I was not expecting that kind of twist in this movie mm -hmm. for this kind of underlying thing that, that he's been, been complaining, complaining about, about that she always has roommates and he can't stay over basically um that her new roommate was going to be evelyn under a pseudonym uh, i did not catch that i thought evelyn was at toby's house to buy some art or something like that that's mm -hmm. i i got i didn't catch that twist so that that's yeah. a good little twist yeah it's very much just conversational um that and i i think we've talked about it before like um, when things are in a movie and you know they're only there to be paid off and it, like they stick out like a sore thumb like in cheap animation uh, when you're like oh that's the boulder that's going to fall because it's a different color than the rest of the mountain this was like no it totally blended in and I did not see it coming and I was like that reveal when she kind of steps into the light I was like oh shit and then she casts her shadow over the portrait of Clint Eastwood that we saw him yes. looking at earlier yeah uh such a good it's so well put together for like a first film like it's definitely the way everything pays off like it begins at that house at the very beginning of the movie that's the house he's at where he's he's outside of it's not his apartment it's her house and he's looking in the window mm -hmm. at the portrait of himself and it ends the the video the visual essay uh had a really great thing it was like uh she like hacks up the portrait um of him 
Um, and then he 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 returns and, and uh, takes the place of the, of the fake version of him that was in the house and then throws her out. And she and like it, it's it's a little bit of a stretch in the visual essay, but it's like uh, when he when he uh, when the movie does end, but when he throws her out of the window and she briefly turns into like an, a dummy, they're saying like throwing her throwing out the fake version of her or whatever. I don't know. It was a very like elaborate explanation for like uh-huh. real like the the the. the substitutions of like uh i don't know uh i'm kind of fucking it up but no i i i gotcha there's there's the fake clint eastwood in the painting and then her doll version kind of as one character enters the other exits through this artificial form uh i really dug the cross cutting as she's stabbing the painting and slashing and she starts at the eyes which i just find unsettling to stab the painting's eyes and go down mm-hmm. but the cross cutting between that and him driving i thought really showed a lot of like visual flair it cranked up the tension for me here at the end after things had kind of really de-escalated so now we're back on the rise again getting more tension getting more escalation yeah it comes back hard the shots in the car when it's looking straight up basically like from like past his face to like the sky i'm just and it's it's sort of like pre-dawn light slash like day for night and like looks incredible it's just like this crazy it, it, it's for me that's like the it pays off everything that you know all like the lull that we had to have the shock of all this come in it's like okay all right that's why you did it see it's like jazz it's the notes you don't play. that's what it is <laughs> so uh andrew i totally uh that angle from behind the passenger seat up onto his face mm-hmm. like i'm copying that for something because it is so good and it is so like the way that he looks um, is so like, he looks imposing there and you get the idea that it's like, Oh, now he is fully invested in this and he's got to go save his woman. And like, he's on the hunt and like his jaw and everything just looks like monumental. It's so cool. Cop shows up. Cop has bad timing. Oh, cop gets stabbed in the chest. Cop is also very slow response time. Because Evelyn takes about three seconds from the time she jumps out in the light to the time she's stabbing him in the chest. And the man seems to have done nothing to defend himself. Uh, I felt so bad because every time the cop showed up in this, I was like, I made a little note of like, I like this cop. Like, maybe, maybe not all cops, you know, maybe this guy's a good one. And uh, then he gets, he's, he's apparently not a great cop. <laughs> Because he does get totally shish, shish kebobbed here. With scissors. Yeah. I always appreciate a scissor kill. Something about it. I don't know. I just like it. Okay. When when you say scissor kill, is there something that comes to mind? Is there a iconic scissor kill? Inside. Okay. The French yep. movie. Yep, there yep. is a lot of scissor violence in that movie, um, which did not hold up for me as well. I've rewatched it recently. Oh, uh, that movie's fucking extreme, though. <laughs> yeah, that movie's so fucked up. Um, I would say the Dead Zone. That's where I was going to. Yep. I don't. I don't even know what the Dead Zone is. So there's the guy. There's going to be a visual thing for the for the audience. But there's a, there's a guy who's he's going to kill himself with scissors. And what he does is he props him up. And he puts his hands behind his head and he opens his mouth and he just <laughs> and then it cuts wow. before you see it happen. But it, go, it like they go into his like mouth before the I, get, I feel like it it goes further than you would think and then it cuts. Ah. 
Yeah. That's a hell of a way to kill yourself. Yeah. I would never think of spiking myself through the mouth. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's like not on my list. <laughs> no. Of all the ways that I might do it, that would not be on the list. Doesn't it doesn't seem certain. It seems like you're leaving a, like you you you're leaving a lot to chance. Like you're going to feel a lot of pain probably. Like the odds are good, like 70% chance you're going to live if you don't do it just right. <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> uh, so Dave shows up, and this is where we get our final confrontation as she starts stabbing him and slashing him. He really gets his ass kicked here. She stabs uh, the shit out of him. There's one point where he grabs the blade of the knife. Oh, Any time that happens in movies, I can feel that shit. <laughs> or watching the raid, there's a part where a guy... He's hiding behind some drywall and a guy machetes through the drywall and it slices his cheek. And then the guy slowly pulls the machete out. And you just, oh, so gross. I, I really, at this point, I just appreciated that he shows up. He only gets in like one hit, but it's the only one he needs because <laughs> he punches her straight out the window across the balcony and over the railing like just one good sock and it's it, a hell it's, of a punch man yeah it's just a hell big old haymaker and it just takes her out she got a uh, nordberg yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I love at the end of naked gun when nordberg goes over the railing you can see the co2 from the yeah. the cannon all the co2 like floating out of the wheelchair <laughs> Oh, and poor Evelyn goes over the railing, over the cliff, into the ocean. As Toby and Dave leave the house, he had set up a tape in the radio station, and it plays Misty for Evelyn one more time. The, uh, but it switches very quickly after the fall to some happy jazz. <laughs> <laughs> and it cracked me up that it's like, da 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 uh, kind of very groovy. And, okay, this was my note through the, the beach shots. So we have the opening helicopter shot to zoom in. We have this ending, which also seems impossible, uh, of Evelyn floating in this little cove. And then it kind of pulls up and around the outcropping uh, and zooms out. And we had the, the shot of them, the lovers on the beach. Like this visually connecting through line of these long lens shots. Uh, of that coastline and i don't know what they say but i like the the repeating of it uh, especially since i got to look at the coast like just some beautiful location photography yeah i do like in this movie you really do get a feel for like the beach area and his house and the restaurant are kind of the three locations where we go to them often enough that you really feel the ins and outs of them and where these characters are and how they hang out and live in these places. Yeah, I think, um, and this is, this is a kind of a running theme throughout his career is a lot of the time his movies do have a really good sense of place, uh, to the point where they seem like travelogues. I think the, this one is a really great one, uh, for Carmel, obviously. But then, uh, in the nineties when he did midnight in the garden of good and evil, um, mm -hmm. it's literally the end of the movie. It like, it's, it's kind of the point of the story is that, it, the whole everything that happens was to get John Cusack's character to move to Savannah, Georgia. Like that's that's the big triumphant like climax of the movie is when he moves to Savannah. 
And like, there's so much like local color in that. And like, just try like, he just loves the area to the point that the movie itself is like, like the story is like, okay, but it's like this, it's clearly, it's only what he likes about it. And I think, um, I think most infamously is the 1517 to Paris when he's filming with those guys and they like go to get gelato and they're doing all the fun stuff in Amsterdam. Like he would film a full on like travel, like, a. am uh, surprised he hasn't done like an actual like documentary or like a travel thing. I mean, he did. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He was somewhat involved in this uh, uh, a documentary about Carmel, about the history of Carmel called Don't Pave Over Main Street. Um, but uh, it wasn't like he didn't direct it or anything. So it's just it's just interesting that that's always something that finds its way in, especially considering he's a filmmaker who's so focused, famously so focused on like one taken out, you know, all the time uh, that he makes space for these things. I think maybe because he does that, he has extra time to do that stuff. I don't know. It's interesting. So did he ever have a segment in like New York? I love you or Paris Jatam or any of those. No, the only, he was in the, uh, he acted in an anthology segment of the witches, the Italian <laughs> thing. Okay. Yeah. That's, I think his only, and, and then he did an episode of amazing stories. So what would you guys say is your favorite Clint Eastwood? Can you pick a favorite? Well, I would be unforgiven. I think unforgiven is like perfect. I have not seen it in, uh, like since my, I was a teenager, I think I've been meaning to get back to it. I do remember um, Hackman plays a great asshole. He has this. Uh, my favorite line, one of my favorite lines in any movie ever, and favorite deliveries is when he's uh, there's a character named English Bob, and Gene Hackman just beats the shit out of him, and he kicks him out of the saloon. And when he does it, he says, "I guess you think I'm kicking you, Bob." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's so just, just petty and mean. It's so good. Josh, how about you? Uh, I don't, it is really hard to beat Unforgiven. Uh, I think that's a fantastic film. Um, I also, I really like Mystic River. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good one. Um, that's a movie that seemingly has vanished from people's radar. Where it's talked about a lot around the Oscars and the time that it came out, and I mm-hmm. feel like people just don't talk about it at all anymore. I think it um, it deserves credit, and and you guys can correct me if you, if I'm wrong about this, but I think it kind of kickstarted the wave of Boston set crime films or like New England set crime films that continues, you know, to this day. Like that was the first big one, um, and then you know you get The Departed and Gone Baby Gone and and so on in the yeah. town. I feel like the the drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, isn't that in the area? Of course, I'm going to go backwards to uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle because that's my movie. Well, that's yeah, the one I love. So. I mean, but, but you know, that was 30 years before. Mr. Yes, Griffin. I know. I'm, I'm it saying was, it's this not part like of the wave. Again, I'm not. It wasn't the first crime movie set in Boston, John. Yes, <laughs> um, but I also I love the Man with No Name trilogy. I I think those movies are so good. And even continuing through, um, I feel like uh, High Plains Drifter and Outlaw Josie Wales are all kind of of a piece tonally with that. And I just love that character. He basically plays through most of those. I've seen Good, Bad, and Ugly and Hang 'em High. So I'm missing, what, Fistful of Dollars is the one I'm missing? Uh, And uh, it's Fistful of Dollars and for a few dollars more. And then Hang 'em High is like a different... Okay, I did. I wasn't yeah. crazy about Hang 'em High. I remember, so uh, I, I should check those out because I really dug Good, Bad, and the Ugly. 
Yeah, that I would say that's probably the best movie he's in. Um, but in terms of directing, I would and and being in, it'd probably yeah. be Unforgiven. And then just a little treat for a little advancement. I mean, I don't talk about the movie that much in the book, but it's like the last Sergio Leone movie, and I talk about all of Leone's movies. But Once Upon a Time in America is the best film in that book. Period. It's better than anything Clint Eastwood ever made. It's incredible. It's one of the best movies ever made, all time. Masterpiece. I've never seen that one. Uh, highly recommended. It, it's a. Uh, it's got some rough stuff in it, but it's very good. And it's just, it's just colossal. It's huge. I love it. So this is not Clint Eastwood's best movie, but it's by far the one I've seen the most. Is uh, Heartbreak Ridge. I watched, it's just Clint Eastwood as like an old badass gunny sergeant who gets sent to a marine base to train a troop of ragtag marines who are a bunch of fuck-ups and turn them into good soldiers. And it's just, it's so 80s and it's so over the top with some of the things, but I just, I watched it so many times as a kid. That was one of the first Netflix dvds that i got in the mail where i'm like mom can i add a dvd to the queue and so i finally got to watch that movie from start to finish yeah that one's nuts that's he's got like a scar on his neck but he and he he has this really gravelly voice you know yeah he says he says one guy he says um there's a guy smoking a cigar and he says better get that cigar out of my face before i shove it so far up your ass you have to light your nose to smoke it So overall, what do we think of Play Misty for me out of five? Josh, what would you give it? Uh. <laughs> the dogs love it. The dogs are nuts for this movie. They really wanted to voice their opinion. I really expected Lancaster to be the... He's here in dogs. I got new neighbors that are still moving in. And I'm, yeah. I'm glad he's not, um, I'm just glad he's not doing an, anything crazy. An utter madman? Yeah. Um, I would give it four so, out of five. Uh, you give it four out of five? Yeah, I love it. I, I liked it more this time, actually. I I think I'm at three and a half. Uh, like as a suspense film, I don't think it entirely works. Um, because I just the amount of chances he gives her kind of deflates it for me, and then my favorite sequence in the movie also deflates the tension. <laughs> But it is a great sequence, and I just love how it looks. Uh, what about you, Sean? Uh, I'm going to give it a three and a half. I think. Yep. I think Jessica Walter is amazing, and there's about an hour of this movie that's really great. And then um, I dig the vibe of the slowdown, that 15 minute slowdown. But I think in the end, it does hurt this movie overall for me. All right. Um, so. Well, uh, I'm trying to think if I had, I had any other notes. I know that there's one, apparently, um, the studio was, this is from the, doc, there's a documentary called, uh, I forget what, what's it called, Play It Again. Or, uh, or it's on the DVD and the Blu-ray release. And it was it was done for the DVD, so, and it's like almost an hour long, so it's like longer than most. That's where I got the John Cassavetes trivia from. And then mm-hmm. this this bit is, uh, apparently Universal was like concerned about the Play Misty for me as the song. They were like, what if, what if you did, like, play Scooby-Dooby-Doo for me? Was one of their suggestions. <laughs> Which I kind of love. And, like, it matches the opening font. So I'm like... Yes, it does. It's kind of crazy that it's actually, like, what they suggested. I was like... And then apparently, the first time ever I saw your face, he that wasn't in the script, that whole sequence. And he made the sequence because he liked that song. 
So that's how that happened. Okay. He like bought, he heard the song on the radio, bought the rights and made that sequence. <laughs> so. I absolutely love that. And once again, it fits my theory of like him doing this just to get all of his little pet, uh, fascinations out into the world mm-hmm. um well are we uh does this move us on to the Iger sanction this moves us on to the break okay the next movie we're going to be talking about is the Iger sanction a 1975 movie directed by clint eastwood and this is the first time i had ever even heard of this movie so andrew was this your choice or josh's I th- I think this was mine. Yeah, I think we we had a little discussion about which one to pair would be the best to pair with Play Misty for me, and I think uh, this worked good as a uh, kind of a bookend for his first era of directing. In terms of uh, he had a deal with Universal, he made a few movies, and this was the last one before he went on to Warner Brothers and Greener Pastures. But uh, yeah, I love this movie. Uh, I I wasn't sure what to expect, but I I think it's James Bondy with a little dirty Harry or something like that mixed in there. Um, I have not seen many spy movies at all in my life. I've been meaning to watch Tinker Tailor soldier spy for years now. Haven't done it. So this was also one of my first exposures to this pace of movie where it's just, that it's got that seventies pacing where, uh, characters are figuring things out but in the meantime it's not all plot you know we're going to do some stuff that's more just about setting a tone for the movie or getting a feel or we got to get our boob count up so we're going to include some boobs in this next scene stuff like that you know um and this movie is based on a book by trevenian is that how you say it i saw that name Uh and that was like that is the name of a james bond villain was it or that was trevelyan yes but still uh which he wrote like it's a it's a pen name of one of the screenwriters um and i think it was secret for a long time because he wrote like these espionage things uh that are they're very james bondy they're very silly they're like they're over the top i think james bond is mostly straight-faced this stuff like the character uh, the main characters are so good at what they do. Like it's ludicrous. Uh, and the one that I've read is Shibumi, uh, which sounds like it's going to be uh, about a doo-wop group, but it's not. <laughs> Shibumi, Shibumi. Uh, and I think this stuff is so fun. Like the, the, like you were saying the vibe, the seventies feel of all of this. Um, the fact that it is kind of like those first several James Bond movies where you're like, Oh, look at this beautiful scenery. Look at all the colorful stuff that happens in this, in this space. Uh, it could just serve, you could take whole sections out of this film and it would actually be a travelogue about mountaineering, uh, you know, and going up. I also didn't know Iger was a mountain. I forgot this was a spy movie by the end of it, where I was like, oh, yeah, this isn't a mountain climbing movie. This is like a spy assassin movie. Yes. <laughs> I lost complete track of that plot. Uh, in Shibumi, there's a very similar, like, the main character and then his buddy who go caving uh, through line. Um, 
And so when George Kennedy is introduced in this, um, I was worried because in the other book I've read by this guy, that character gets killed very early on and is one of those like, I must avenge my friend. I can't let him die for nothing. Kind of. Have kind of you characters. guys seen George Kennedy in anything outside of Naked Gun? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's like the, the patron saint of disaster movies. Well, I saw he did five movies called Airport, which I've never <laughs> heard of any of them. Um, yeah, he's a, he's like the he's the engineer of the plane in the first one, which was nominated for Best Picture, by the way. It's a uh, it's very it's it, it, I don't know if it deserved it, but uh, <laughs> is that on the is that like the Towering Inferno or one of those? Okay, it was the first one. Well, there was I guess you could go back to like the High and the Mighty in the fifties uh, with uh, with John Wayne as kind of an early disaster movie. But the Irwin Allen wave of disaster movies that would would lead to like Earthquake and the Towering Inferno, it kind of started with Airport. Um, but mm. uh, I also want to say that George Kennedy is incredible in another Clint Eastwood movie, uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And he's great really? Cool Hand Luke. I've never seen Cool Hand Luke. That's one of those that's been on my list for decades, and it's one of my shame movies that I haven't seen, and I'm ashamed of it. So... <laughs> Literally one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm doing another visual gag showing you my cool hand Luke necklace. Stop doing visual aid jokes. <laughs> uh, it's the cool hand Luke has been in my Josh uh, wears letterbox a bottle opener four. around his neck audience because yes. he's not going to explain what he just did. So I will. Did we just make it up? He was holding up a bunch of eggs. I don't know. Like a- <laughs> Josh is also I, wearing I, I an eye patch eggs. like Snake Plissken. <laughs> he's eating a bunch of hard boiled eggs. Uh, With no salt because he's an animal. <laughs> but George Kennedy is dragline. Every time I see him, I'm like, there's dragline. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't make actors like him anymore. No. I don't know what dragline is, but my God, George Kennedy is the perfect foil to Leslie Nielsen in the Naked Gun movies. And his he's Leslie Nielsen's boss, and he's like supportive of him but also understands how absurd frank drebin is i don't know that his performance in naked gun is very interesting to me that's but he's i think the perfect foil for a lot of people which is why he was like i mean he is the the character actor for a lot of these things you're just like oh i need a george kennedy like he's he's one of that the original those guys i think He's great in this, and he and Clint together play off each other wonderfully, like old climbing buddies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they um they have a scene. Uh, not to jump too far ahead, but they have a scene where they're on top of the uh, totem pole in uh, Monument <sighs> Valley. Yes. Uh, first of all, horrified about all of that. Second of all, I you know I know George Kennedy didn't climb up there, but uh, Clint did apparently climb up there, and they're the last. That's the last time people were allowed to climb it. Uh, It is now a a national park uh, where you can't do that. I have so many questions about that spire and how, so how was they, did they get any cameras up on top of that spire or did they shoot George and Clint in a second location that looked similar, but it was more accessible? I was, I was very confused. How'd they get a camera up there if they did? Um, A lot of this movie, I don't think could be made today. The whole production of this seems insanely dangerous in a way like even the start there's a starting stunt where he climbs up a pipe up the side of a building and it looks death defying because i just can't imagine that there was any safety measures underneath him 
Maybe they had like one of those gymnasium mats or something, but yeah, the, um, there w- it, it was dangerous, and uh, there was someone who did die while they were filming. One of the climbers. Um, it actually in the behind the scenes, uh, one of the two small things. It was an interview with the actor who plays uh, Freytag. Freytag. Mm-hmm. That's a guy named uh, Rainer Schoen. I'm, I'm butchering it. Rainer Schoen. Um, but he he it was a good friend of his, and they were filming, and they were they're literally on the mountain like hauling gear up and stuff. And um, he literally said, like, you know, Clint was just, like, white and, like, just told him, like, uh, some, you know, uh, somebody died. We, you know, we think it was Dave, like, when it first happened. Um, and uh, they had a doctor fly up, fly up in a helicopter to, like, check, check the vitals or whatever, but they couldn't get him down. So he had to hang up there overnight. It was a horrifying story. It's a climate. It's something that happens. I, I mean, it's a reality for climbers, I think, especially at that time, that, like, that can happen. But, uh, and I'm sure like in certain scenarios, like it could still happen where you like just have to hang there dead, you know, or like Mount Everest where they leave bodies. But yeah, that was, uh, so yeah, it, uh, it was very dangerous. And I think, um, there's after this, I think Clint Eastwood worked with a different, uh, some different, uh, key, uh, crew, including he never worked with the cinematographer again, I don't think. And I don't think they blamed him, but I just think it was probably a tough situation for everybody involved. It doesn't sound like it was a, uh, an act of filmmaking hubris, like a Twilight Zone situation. It's more like a, oh, that like you know, we you know we did our best and we didn't realize uh, what happened was he got hit in the head with a rock that was falling. They called it out, but he didn't react fast enough that the rock was falling. And it just broke his neck, even though he had a helmet on. Jesus, that's just how that guy went in this movie. Mm-hmm. That's the other crazy thing too, is to realizing how similar it is to things that happen in the movie. It's like oh uh, god. Well, it makes me think of like. Free Solo, most recently, that's a documentary. It doesn't really count. Excellent movie, though. Um, but, like, the Vertical Limit, the Chris O'Donnell movie, and so, I, I, it just makes me think now, like, th- all of that shit must have been on sound stages. Because there's no way they had, they were schlepping actors around on mountains in, like, glacial ranges like they do in this movie. Yeah, that and, like, um, the movie Everest that came out a few years ago with, uh, like, Josh Brolin and a bunch of people in it. Like, there's, that's all... I mean, it's it's elaborate sets, but with like extensions and CG extensions, I'm sure. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know that there's some location photography and all of this stuff, but they're not putting they're not putting the actors in danger. And and you know, I think it's telling that Clint Eastwood himself is the only like name actor, you know, above the title actor who's involved in some of these climbing sequences and anything that resembles real danger, because everyone else is not to say no one else is important, but they're not, you know. They're doing it because they're climbers. They're not, uh, uh, you know, first, they're climbers first and actors second, for the most part. I know Clint Eastwood was like, had the reputation of being the cowboy and Dirty Harry and whatnot. I guess I didn't realize how jacked Clint Eastwood was <laughs> until like watching this movie and seeing him climb up these walls or holding on to a pipe. I think that was him climbing that pipe and not a stunt double. Um but he still looks like he drinks whiskey and smokes cigarettes. So it's like this weird juxtaposition of like a burly man who looks so unhealthy at the same time. That uh, whole scene where he's like in that wedge position, like shimmying his way up inside the crevasse. And you're just like, and, and he's okay. Logistically, you see him on screen also delivering lines. So he's acting with George Kennedy while he's doing this stunt, but he was also directing like he directed these sequences 
at like this. I'm like, how long was he standing up there, like in that position, just holding himself in the middle of this thing? It's insane. I was like, this. He's a badass. Like, <laughs> there's no other word. He's just badass in this era. It, it it's crazy. What like the the about him? Because it's not like he was a career. You know, like he didn't. I don't think he. Ro- I think he learned to rock climb and free climb for this movie. I don't think he mm-hmm. did it recreationally all that much. I mean, he's in good shape because he just stays in shape. But that was the kind of thing. It's like Jesus. Like you know, uh, it it's, it sucks that this movie. I mean, it, we'll get to why it's maybe good that this movie isn't very well known, but. Uh, it sucks because it, it, like, it's crazy what he does in it, what he's able to do in it. it, it it's like really impressive. It's the kind of stuff Tom Cruise gets credit for, you know, I mean, he, he deserves credit for doing it, but it's like Mission Impossible stuff. Like, it's absolutely mm-hmm. insane. This is, yeah, they, you're, was it Mission Impossible 2 where Tom Cruise is climbing maybe the same spire as the, or <laughs> very similar looking kind of climbing setup? Mm-hmm. Uh, I hadn't quite, I hadn't thought of that. Oh yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's probably in Monument Valley or near there where they shot Mission Impossible Two. I'd have to look it up, but yeah, it's um, yeah, just that alone. You know, and that was even before he was known for doing or famous for doing like those cra- the craziest stuff. But he's like climbing in that as well. So yeah, Tom Cruise is trying to make himself into a Hollywood martyr. He's like, please, just let one of these movies kill me, so you'll remember me forever. I am excited about the new Top Gun, I will say. I'm excited about all of it. Uh, the fun thing for me now is the guy who directed Top Gun, he did only The Brave, which I love. It's incredible. And he did Tron Legacy, which is like, I'll watch it whenever. It's, I love it, it, but it's not like great. But it looks great. But he um, he made another movie for Netflix called Escape from Spiderhead. Well, it's called Spiderhead now, and it's, direct, it's based on a George Saunders short story. And I'm, he did that way after Top Gun was done. And so I'm curious to see if that comes out before Top Gun at this point. That's where I'm at. With Top Gun has been finished for seemingly four years now. People have seen it. Like, they've screened it for, like, a few people. Um, so it's not, I mean, there's obviously no reviews out or anything. But I don't know if it was test screenings ex- or exclusively or, like, it's like some podcast I listen to, like, they're hurt this woman's husband. Um, is like works for like an entertainment magazine and he got to see it, but she didn't. And she's like miserable about it. <laughs> um, but to go back to the beginning, Iger Sanction, because I, I don't want to talk yeah. about it at the beginning and I don't want to jump the gun on the very, on the opening because it's right after the opening. Segment. Okay. Yeah. So we start with the opening with the guy. He's, he has some kind of film. He swallows it. He gets killed by an assassin. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) And we, and we open up with the John Williams score, which is fantastic. And the the last one he'd ever do for Eastwood, as far as I'm aware. Uh, but, um, obviously he had another fruitful collaboration, uh, continue the same year or yeah, I think he did Sugarland and then, uh, with the Steven Spielberg, because Jaws came out, I think not long after this, I think it was after this, but then, um, what, what's interesting is when we first meet, uh, Eastwood's character, uh, Jonathan Hemlock. Uh, it's it's the it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's the, it's how we meet Indiana Jones as a teacher. Yes. In Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, Absolutely, dude, like the girl flirting. She even writes down how much she loves him in like cursive. It's just not on her eyelids. I mean, it's so. There's I'm so sorry. Many can we can we talk about how awful her handwriting is? Because <laughs> I could not for the life of me decipher what the fuck that said. It said we could all do. We could do something, something. I would let him climb all over me. Yeah, I would let him climb all over me. 
I did not. I, I, you could have given me five years to have read that, and I wouldn't have deciphered that. I rewound and paused multiple times to like, what is it? I, he could, what? And then I was like, does she hate him? Does she love him? I don't understand. It's that Clint Eastwood one take method, man. Uh-huh. You only have one, time enough to write something down on a piece of paper one time. I just, I just loved it. That I mean, there's no way that wasn't like a conscious you know, nod or a conscious thing Spielberg was repurposing for. Yes. Um, considering it was like Universal he, he, and it was John he, He's like, all right, I'm going to be a good guy and I'm not going to fuck this student. I'm going to tell her to go study, <laughs> but I am going to slap her ass on the way out the door. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the, that's the little reward you get for being a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> I can't just be a good guy just to be good. No, I got to no. get something out of it. What is it? He tells her to go study her ass off, and then after he slaps it, he says, well, not the whole thing. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> um, like, ugh. And then uh, the creepy dude is in his office, and he's been listening to the whole thing. And that guy is gross. The yeah. The henchman for Dragon is... hes I don't like him. He's greasy. I mean, everyone is greasy at this era, but he's I, real I bad. I swear we get a little misty nod when he says, either the door or the window, your choice. <laughs> oh, they, they, he definitely nods to, uh, he and Don Siegel both like nod to each other's movies during this time period. Like I think in Dirty Harry, there's a marquee with play Misty for me on it in the mm-hmm. background of the, of one of the, I think it's a scene where he, uh, um, when he's eating the hot dog, do you feel lucky? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's when it is. And then, uh, I'm trying to think of what the other one is. Maybe there's a reference in Breezy or something. In Breezy, well, it's a reference to High Plains Drifter. They go to see High Plains Drifter in Breezy, I think. But yeah, they, they're always going back and forth and and that. It's really fun. So it, it definitely wouldn't surprise me if he's still, you know, tongue-in-cheek bringing that up. That's great. Um, what do you think of uh, Dragon? Oh, uh, Dr. Claw? From Inspector Gadget? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I... I straight up Bond villain. I love that he has a gigantic red glowing map of the United States, <laughs> like he's planning his invasion. Mm-hmm. It's by far the silliest part of this movie and the least explored. Like the like, and I love it. Like like later it comes out like, oh yeah, did you know he worked for the? I bet you didn't know he worked for the Nazis, and he took you know we took that technology. Yeah, um, like that kind of stuff. It's like, wait, wait, like that's a whole other story. I want to, I want to find out about what's going on here. Like, how did you get involved in this like soldier of fortune situation with this uh, actual Nazi dude who's an albino who has to have his blood replaced every like day or so? Like his entire blood supply has to be replaced. Yeah, they call him a bloodless freak. He has the glazed over eyes. I, I, it, it's so many choices for this villain, <laughs> and they're like, let's. What if we just did? All of them. <laughs> it's also the kind of thing, like, because I'd seen this before, obviously, and going back and what, like, to watch it, I was like, I remember all the mountain climbing stuff. I'm like, oh, it's a great mountain climbing movie, even though I've already seen it. All the dragon stuff is all new again. It's brand new. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I know it's in there, but it all just comes fresh again. I'm like, oh, wow. So, Dragon wants him to sanction some people, assassinate them. I really like that Clint's normal um, fee was $10,000, but he tells the dragon he'll do this one for double, and dragon has already gotten $20,000 ready, and click, I hate to be predictable. <laughs> it's, that stuff feels like it's out of a different movie. Like, 
all of this, uh, the spy stuff, and the spy stuff is different than the mountaineering stuff is different than the teaching stuff. And they're just like, yeah, this all goes together. It's fine. Yeah, the the novel I think is more like openly satirical of it. Like it's it's more of like a, a conscious parody of spy tropes. Yeah, and it's a weird mix between like he just sort of presents them in a straightforward way. But I think the parodying of spy tropes does kind of it extends to the you know uh, to Miles the, the 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 mincing homosexual character with a dog with a very specific name does seem like a satire of a type of villain you would find in a spy novel or like a James Bond movie, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think, I don't, I just don't know how, if he's not as, as clearly presenting it as satire or as like a joke on the genre as he should be, or if he doesn't care about doing it that way and he just wants to present it in a straightforward way. So I think he know I'm sure he knows that it's a joke, at least partially. And he's in on the joke a little bit. But it's uh, it's definitely an interesting thing to think about. It's hard to tell how heightened it's supposed to be because uh, I think in especially the recent Bond movies, they've gotten fairly ludicrous and played them very straight. I mean, we've moved past the the winky naughty kind of era. Uh, I think with the, with the Craig Bonds and I mean the man taking half of his face out during their <laughs> during their initial conversation uh and then the whole action sequence that comes off of that is silly it's a very silly sequence in a very serious movie otherwise so i think looking back from today's perspective seeing this kind of stuff you just kind of assume that it's uh straight faced i think i can't really picture roger moore being strapped to a chair and having his balls whacked with a rope over and over and over like Casino Royale. Not that I wouldn't want to. <laughs> um, the I like the line uh, don't call me buddy, pal or sweetheart. <laughs> Just such a good ridiculous and in his very manly voice he gets away with these things. Is this the and this leads up to the sequence where he goes to like he has the poses as the delivery person. Uh, have you ever heard Clint Eastwood do an accent before? Because I sure haven't. <laughs> this was shocking. Yeah, I, I heard it in uh, in White Hunter Black Heart, he does a John Houston impression because he's basically playing John Houston, and and that's weird. But I like like it's the only time he really doesn't play someone that's not like just Clint Eastwood. But yeah, this was. I, I don't know. I never would have thought about it, but no, he, he doesn't do this. Ever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's really weird. Yeah. Hearing him throw on a little like German or Swiss accent, whatever he was doing, was <laughs> just with his funny little white, like a boat captain hat that it's his delivery boy hat. I don't, it, it just really cracked me up. I think he's so conscious of his screen persona, I think over the years and like it proves it out by like choosing the, the projects he did. But uh, like for me, like that's maybe like he's trying to sort of push the like push it further than it has gone before, and it's like like it's kind of like the Humphrey Bogart like uh, big sleep acting like a silly man or like like a what does he do? He like talks in like a when he goes to the bookstore or something, and he's like acting puts on an accent. Oh yeah, who can't do that? Like and he learned that <laughs> he tried it and it didn't work. So the whole thing is if i get if i understand this hemlock clint eastwood character is 
uh, a former assassin who is also an art collector and a world-class mountaineer. And he's going to use this $20,000 he gets from, from this sanction uh, to buy new rare art to add to his collection in his castle turret. It's like he's a junkie. Like, he has to spend more money on art or something. It's a yes. very strange character motivation. Yeah, it's he like when he says that, uh, I guess I'll pass and like I'm, he won't be able to buy the, the painting. He's like bummed out. Like he's like, oh, <laughs> he's kind of like a little like I won't get the painting. <laughs> uh, but also Dragon threatens to turn him over to the IRS. Uh, for all of his shady underworld dealings, but he also this work is sanctioned by the government. Be, but. Kind of not, but if he does it, he's going to get a letter to the IRS saying, never look at me. <laughs> he's getting a, a special <laughs> note that says, don't check my shit. Does he not, do they not have uh, free ports back then? Like in, uh, like in Tenet? Where they could, uh, oh yeah, yeah. They could hide, uh, they could, they could trade high priced uh, black market artworks uh, without paying taxes. But then, okay, so my question there was, then do you have to go to the warehouse district to look at your shit? Yeah, unless you had, like, an NFT of it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Oh, I love it. So the guys aren't buying his delivery boy routine, so they send him packing, so then he climbs the pole. Uh, ends up shooting one guy and punches the other guy straight out the window, just like he misties him. Yeah. Yes. I like the the contrast between he cl- he climbs up from the ground and then like it, it's a it's a like purposeful contrast with like I'm you know he's comfortable out there but this other guy is like not qualified like he's gonna fall all the way down to his death. Like it shows you how tall it is and highlights how tough it is to yeah. get it to climb up there. Uh, it, it, I liked the camera falling effect. Yeah. Where it shows, like, the camera plummeting and twisting towards the ground. That's, I was wondering, did they just throw a camera over the edge (laughs) to do that? Probably. Uh, Because, how long has the the idea of the crash camera been a thing? Like, I know in um, Three Burials of uh, Macchiatus Estrada they throw a dummy horse off of a cliff onto the camera and just completely just fucking destroyed the camera. And they were lucky to get the footage out. So the idea is you sacrifice the camera and hopefully the film. Yes. Is not damaged. Yes. I know. Um, okay. I mean, I just, in the sense that he may have been thinking along these lines, if they did just destroy a camera that way. Um, I know in flags of our fathers, what he did to shoot additional footage for the movie was he would just, he put cam like little, digital cameras from 2005 or 2006 he would put them in like the 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 gear that the soldiers had and just have them rolling the entire time he just had everybody had one and so he's just so he's not above just throwing cameras in scenes and letting them get footage and collecting it later uh-huh. oh god the poor intern that had to log <laughs> all of that footage and watch all of that footage sift through hours of it waiting for like oh maybe maybe that two seconds could be a shot maybe uh, what? I never saw Flags of Our Fathers or Letters from Iwo Jima. How were those movies? Well, I I like them both, uh, but I definitely like Letters 
better. Uh, I think letters makes flags better after the fact. Um, flags was one that came out first and it, it definitely, it's kind of, the structure's kind of weird. I wish it was just, it, it's told in like a, uh, it's, it's kind of, it, it's less of an actual war movie than it is like, it's like they come back to sell war bonds after uh, raising the flag at Iwo Jima. Uh, but meanwhile, they keep flashing back to Iwo Jima and you realize like it was like, it's, it, it just sort of qualifies the definition of heroism and it highlights the extent to which like, like we're, we're kind of, you know, hip to it, you know, now like, Oh, like you, uh, they're selling war to us by making it look cool. Um, but at the time, you know, at the time, like world war two was just as sold as any other war. You know, we all think it was like just and that, I mean, it was, you know, ultimately we you know, it's good that we won, but at the Wait, same were time, were you siding with the Nazis there, Andrew? No, the, well, it, it, it the flag of fathers is about how much, like it's, it's, it, it, we sold the war to the American public as well. Yeah. And it's about the toll that took on the soldiers who had to shill for it as well, even though they were the ones fighting it and they were the ones suffering, um, which I think is interesting. And it, it works in contrast to Iwo Jima because Iwo Jima is told from the Japanese perspective and it has flashbacks just like Flags of Our Fathers, but, um, but it, never, it only has flashbacks to their time before they got to the island. And that's because none of them like make it. I mean, you know, that's none of them make it off. So it's like an interesting contrast, like, uh, that, that he's doing with those movies, um, whether it works and he shows it's the same scenes a couple times from different angles, which is really cool. And that's something Soderbergh did really well in, uh, when he made mosaic and had the branching off storytelling thing uh, where you could just follow a different path and you'd see it's, it's just the same scene from like a different character's perspective. And it really is an interesting way of like experiencing something. Um, and you know, so I, I love them, but you know, I wrote a book about them, like I said, I don't know. <laughs> you just made Josh very happy comparing anything to Soderbergh. Oh, oh, Andrew knows. I I think if we did a uh, search find for Soderbergh on our text thread, um, you'd get like a, you'd get a daily Soderbergh mention. Yeah, today it's well, or yesterday the article uh, he had the article about the superhero movies where they interviewed him. Because he has a new movie coming out on Thursday. Uh, yes. Yeah, on Thursday. Um, and somebody said, what do you think about superhero movies? Didn't his last movie just come out last year? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Damn, dude works yeah. fast, huh? <laughs> I mean, and he's retired. That's the thing. Yeah, he retired. <laughs> just he re- like Clint Eastwood, huh? Uh-huh. Well, I don't, um, I don't know what Clint's working on now. He, he doesn't have a new well, project. I, I, mean, I mean, in Iger. He's retired oh, in yeah, Iger. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so my next note is him on the plane. He's yes. going to he's going to mountaineering camp. No, first, not yet. We need to get hit on heavily by a very attractive flight attendant. This whole thing, uh, like, I would have been happy even if she didn't continue to be a character. Like, just their banter is really good and. Uh, they both play it to the hilt, I think, in this scene. And this and the next little bit that we see, like the plane and the airport. It looks so cool. I know I keep going on about like this 70s vibe, but God dang it. It just looks so cool to be there. <laughs> I don't think people are going to say that in about like 2015 in 2065, mm-hmm. I don't think people be like, God, it wasn't 2015. Didn't that just like have a certain vibe and it like looks <laughs> so cool and gritty? It's, I don't think we're in that era anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, is, is that why nostalgia is so popular? Because like we live kind of in this era for the last 20 some years that has just been 
very plastic and surfacey, and everything keeps happening all the time and is pushed everywhere instantaneously. There's no like, there's no remote pockets. There's no, uh, you know, in Stranger Things, the middle of Indiana in the 80s is kind of like the late 70s, but with these little touches of of culture that come through. And now everybody gets everything fucking all the time. And we're just so homogenous that there's no individuality to uh, a lot of these things anymore. Well, we've, we've, in a sense, we've just kind of traded the, we, we traded the, in, the, the, the tangible things like tangible objects for the intangible, you know, like it, it, it's, it's kind of a weird, you know, and, and we tell ourselves, you know, it's better. And we're told ourselves it was better for a while. It's like, Oh, the cloud or, Oh, like, digital stuff and now it's like well actually it all kind of sucks and then it kind of you lose and you don't have to work for things you don't have to like track things down you don't have to i don't know i mean it's a little bit of the i'm kind of an old man yells at cloud here but there is some of that like because that is where the nostalgia comes from i think it's like remember when you like like uh i don't know uh you found a poster in like uh or you had to send in the mail for a poster that you couldn't find anywhere else you know and you and you were lucky you got it or like um i don't know think like things that you didn't like you didn't know something and you had to like find the book that had the information at a library or like and you had to go to a library to find it you couldn't search online you know that kind of stuff where it's like even i like only was alive for a little bit of that like pre-internet era um but i remember it you know and it's just like now that we have now that we have access to all the information all the time it's kind of like well i don't know (laughs) it's not as um, one day I do, it's funny i do feel like my sense of nostalgia kind of cuts off right around to the year 2000 or like 90s stuff still hits me real hard with nostalgia and it might just be i'm 35 and so that's when you know i was 13 when year 2000 happened and so that's kind of where you get so many important things and movies and video games and toys or food whatever that leave long lasting imprints on you but like the mid 2000s stuff from when I was in high school, there's a couple of things that are fun to go back and think on. But overall, I, I don't get that pit of my stomach nostalgia hit like I do looking at stuff from the 90s. So I like I love my digital media. I love having access to everything all the time. Uh, and I mean, we've talked about it like in book club. Uh, the difference between like using a Kindle and using a, a physical book. There are things that though that I won't even order from Amazon. Like it, I needed the new dish scraper, and I, I was like, "Fuck it, three ninety nine. Here's my Amazon order." Uh, but like books and things, I like to go to my local bookstore, even if they have to order it, and I'm sure they're getting it from like Amazon warehouse or whatever. I, I don't care. Um, and it's not entirely just to support them. It's like, I want to go and have that feeling of like hunting the stacks and the the tangible nature of, of getting something like that. It just, there are certain things that feel worth it. Uh, there are certain soundtracks that I own on vinyl now. There are certain books that even once you read them, like you want to keep them and have a copy. And I don't feel like, yeah, okay, it's on my Kindle and on my phone and on every device I own ever. but. Like, I can't pick that up and leaf through it. It's not the same. I, you don't have those uh, kind of physical, emotional attachments to these things. And uh, I don't know, a lot of this stuff in the 70s, it was the literally the only way. And so seeing 
all this art, the, when they look at the photos in his house later, uh, and go through like some of these are your friends and some of these are your enemies. It just feels so much cooler than if you had the same thing on your phone screen, on your iPad, like it just, it's got a better feel to it. Uh, I should stress, I love Kindle. I love Amazon. It's my favorite. Um, they're the only place you can buy the book. Um, please buy the book. Please buy it on Kindle. What if I go to Parnassus and order a copy? Can I do that? The book is called The Clint Eastwood Reader. Um, I don't know. Uh, you could ask them. I mean, if they get it from Amazon, then yeah, you could. Um, I will get a dollar and 72 cents out of that. Good, good. Actually, I don't know. Maybe less. I don't know. They might get it for cost, which is which would give you nothing. I don't know how they do that. Um, but yeah, I miss my DVD books, and I don't miss lugging around physical media. I used to go on vacations and bring a DVD book or two, and that was like my comfort blanket when I was traveling or whatever. I knew if I was stressed out. I could pull out the laptop or even back in the day, one of those little tiny portable DVD players, and that would bring me some sense of relief and flipping through the pages and stuff. But I'm, I'm nostalgic for it, but I don't miss it at all because now I have hundreds of movies on two external hard drives that I can just grab and go in a heartbeat and I don't have to worry about them getting scratched or damaged or just so many things just makes it easier for me i don't like the clutter of physical media anymore i have a lot of vinyl records that i went through a brief phase of kind of buying and collecting but that's like my only physical media anymore aside from that i do like books though i have i've never read on a kindle so i don't know if i would like it or not the the kindle paperwhite because i used to have i had a fire and i had like an early kindle and neither one of them really did it for me um but I love reading books on the paperwhite, uh, and I love reading comics on my iPad. I like I'm horrible because I really should support um, Rick and whoever else has the local comic book stores. And I used to. Oh well, until Eli didn't work for the place anymore. Then I canceled my box at <laughs> at Great Escape once my friend didn't work there anymore. Because forget them. Support Amazon. <laughs> Bezos needs our help, guys. Okay? He's trying to go to space. Let him go to space. He needs help. He's calling on all of us. Um, yeah, they're crashing the space station. I know. That's, that's, that's I can't wait for that. Yeah. I mean, it, it just sounds so alarming. It's like, I know, I know they're like, like, it's like what they do. To get, like, it's, they know what they're doing, but it's like, it just sounds bad. It's like, are they sure it's going to hit the ocean? <laughs> I'm just dreading that news story. They're they're deorbiting the ISS by like 2032, I think, or something like that. It's it's a oh. while, it's a ways away. Yeah, they're going to decommission yeah. everything, and it's going to be all private space travel going forward. Well, luckily, I guess luckily with the trajectories, like once that thing hits the atmosphere without heat shielding, you know, like the only way those capsules are able to make it through the atmosphere is because of the shield and aerodynamics. When the space station hits the atmosphere, that thing's disintegrating into dust. Well, fingers crossed. Uh, so Jemima and Clint Eastwood go have sex when he wakes uh, up. Oh, go ahead, Josh. Wait, his house in this one is way uh, better than his last one, because I think he's got a castle next to his house <laughs> where his secret art 
lives. Um, but for a spy, he has no uh, like organizational security. That they just kind of like he just open. There should be locks. There should be like shit to keep people out of your secret art. You would think if you're a hitman, you would be concerned about other hitmen coming yes. to get you. Well, he might be the only one who's into art. Okay. So maybe he doesn't so care did about he, art. Did he lock his safe, or did she... How did she open that thing? Did she say, safe, safe crack his safe? Yeah. Because she, she takes his money and the IRS documents, which would protect his paintings. Again, this movie's so weird. <laughs> Just the fact that like, he's so afraid of like the IRS coming for his paintings is such an odd motivation for a character. I do like it, though. It's like needlessly convoluted. It's like it doesn't have to be this complicated, but it, but it is. Um, <laughs> one other note, and I'm not sure if this is true, but I know we shot at this location before. At Universal Studios, there's like a, a water tank, and next to the water tank is a, like a cabin log cabin old old looking log cabin and they shot like the great outdoors in that cabin like that's the house oh, the, great I love the great outdoors so and it's in a million movies they redress it for a million things and i think the, the there's like a shack or a restaurant in million dollar baby at the very end that he shot there as well but i think they built that on that area uh they didn't use that actual cabin but i think that i mean the interior to me kind of look like looks like what this interior is like redressed oh, so yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if he shot it on the back lot of universal the interior at least so, thinking back on Million Dollar Baby, what a fucking weird movie. <laughs> what? I love that movie. Who, who wrote that movie and then it's like, you know what this movie needs to end it? A stool. <laughs> it's just, it's so out of left field. It's so good. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that's the one, when I was going back and watching all these, I was like, oh, then I gotta watch all the Oscar movies. And I, you know, I watched Mr. Griver and I was like, this is really good. And then I watched Million Dollar Baby, and I was like, I'm a wreck. I am, <laughs> I am devastated. <laughs> it's so good. Um, and it's Morgan Freeman's too, in like, that, right? Do what? Morgan Freeman is yeah. one of the guys in that? Yeah. Yeah, it's him and Morgan Freeman. Um, uh, and then Hilary Swank's like the boxer they're training. But uh, yeah, the whole, the, the way that ends is so just, that's one of the things it's like, there's like that, that's the scene where he's like, like, uh, having to decide what to do, you know, cause she's basically like, I don't want to be alive anymore. I mean, it's, it's basically like about euthanasia, which is like insane. And I thought it was based on a true story and it's not, which makes it even crazier. Um, I know like, why that was a choice. Yeah. That, that's the thing that just boggles my mind. Um, and then, but it's, it, uh, it's like that. And then the opening of uh, a matter of life and death when uh, the plane's going down. Um, I don't know if you guys, you guys have seen that movie, Josh, I think you might have. Yeah. Um, I have not when the plane's going down and he's like the main character's talking to uh, like a radio operator. Um, and it's like, and he realizes it's the last person he's going to talk to and he just falls in love with them. Those two, the, those, that's the kind of shit that just like crushes me. Like, I'm like, I, it, like just thinking about it, I get emotional. And million dollar baby has that at the ending too. When he's just like, uh, someone's like, um, someone tells him like, it's like a, you know, straw man argument. It's a character that, no, no real person would say this, but they just say like, you know, leave it in God's hands or whatever. Probably say something different. And he just says like, you know, she's not asking for God's help. She's asking for mine. And it's just like, oh, like so good. That is a good line. <laughs>
What do you guys got next? I got George picking them up in the pickup truck. Oh, we got George. Uh, I, I oh, Josh is holding up his fingers. Yes, I have a finger. Doing uh, visual things again. We've we've talked about, uh, or Sean, you've talked about like the movie being kind of sloppy. Um, the their lovemaking prequel or mid coitus or whatever when they're sitting by the fire, their little conversation where she's like. What is up with this climbing axe? <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, I'm a mountaineer." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, okay." So we're really just like shoehorning that in. Uh, and also, one of the more uncomfortable lines comes out of this sequence, <laughs> which uh, I absolutely hated. I really didn't like that when they're gonna make love and his the way he refers to it. It's upsetting. You you have to say the line because I don't remember what you're referring to. Oh, he goes. Uh, she kind of leans towards him <laughs> and he says, well, I gave up rape. Oh, it's... <laughs> I guess I blocked that one out of my <laughs> yes, mind. Fuck. Yes. It's one of two. It's one of it's two good. rape jokes. In, it's in it's the movie. good that he gave it up. <laughs> yeah, I, I... You're. <laughs> You're right, uh-huh. that's a good thing. Yes. You're right, because there is the joke later about... There's the throwaway joke about the dog later. Yes. Where it's like, what is, what's going on? It's like all this good stuff about like how the 70s looked, and then I hear people talking. I'm like, oh, I, I'm much happier in 2022 than I would have been in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that, that one bypassed me this time, too. But, yeah, it's... It's, uh... Hmm. You can, you can, if you want to be charitable, you can read it as, as some of the satirical, you know, because in if you watch the other James Bond movies, I mean, the way Sean Connery treats some of the women, I mean, it is tantamount to rape. Uh, yes. And as a knowing, a winking reference, well, not winking maybe, but a reference to High Plains Drifter because Clint Eastwood uh, uh, does a couple of rapes in that as well. Or that one definite rape, one kind of like, there's a gray area, I guess, if you want to okay. be. Uh, so, uh, High Planet Drifter, specifically that, made me, uh, I was going to ask you uh, a long time ago about uh, the scene in Gunslinger. Like, going to, not the movie, but in the book, right? When he, when he goes and, like, wipes out the town. You mean, you mean not the 2017 film, The Dark Tower? Yes, yes. <laughs> but I don't remember. Uh, but th- that's basically it. That's just High Plains Drifter, right? Like, I mean, have you seen High Plains Drifter? Years ago, yeah. I mean, but I mean, like, the, the thing the, about can, High Plains Drifter is he 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 plays the he plays the people in the town against themselves a little bit, kind of forces them to choose sides, uh, and then and then it's uh, it it slowly comes to light that perhaps or perhaps not, perhaps he is the the vengeful spirit of uh um the um the sheriff that they allowed to be dis- to be murdered by outlaws uh through right. their own through their inaction they all stood aside and let it happen um and it's inspired by i think is it the kitty genovese murder in new york where there was a woman being murdered in an alley and, and none of the neighbors did anything and there was a whole news article about like everybody heard it happening nobody did uh, anything and the I guy mean, who su- wrote um, supposedly who wrote shaft he wrote the script for high plains drifter inspired by that incident um, cause it is, you know, it is the kind of thing that's horrifying. 
to, you know, that's the way people, some people behave, you know, anyway, I got grim. Yeah, that's dark. That's let's get, let's get out of this rape and murder section and go, uh, party at the resort with uh, George Kennedy. Can we just talk about George Kennedy's cool ass pickup truck? I don't know what make or model it is, but I love it. It's it's just badass truck. It's a Bronco, isn't it? Is it not a Bronco? I think it's a Bronco. Yeah, I think it's a Bronco. <laughs> it's like a. Uh... But in my mind, Broncos are always OJ Simpson style, where it's a you know like a four door <laughs> SUV. So this has this is the convertible Bronco. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is the most. I wish OJ's model, was yeah. a convertible because then we it would have been fun to see him like curled up in the ball as they're driving down the freeway going thirty five miles per hour, and OJ's just hiding back there. <laughs> OJ out of jail, huh? Nordberg, <laughs> Nordberg coming back again for another. Nordberg, God, he's so funny in Naked Gun movie. That's what really kills me about OJ is like he probably <laughs> would have been one of our biggest celebrities and like America's favorite actors. You know what the big tragedy about OJ Simpson is? <laughs> we didn't get more Naked Gun appearances. <laughs> we didn't get from more him. comedy out of him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. So. Uh, George's climbing school has now become essentially like a singles hangout. They call him an impresario, which he isn't sure if that's a dirty word or not. (laughs) Josh, this Uh, reminded me of that moment in Black Christmas where she says she tells the dumb cop that her phone number is fellatio. Fellatio, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So he's supposed to train Hemlock to go climb the Iger, uh, which has defeated him two times in the past. He's failed to climb this mountain. Um, and, oh, uh, when Dragon is setting him up for this job, um, he says the title of the movie. He's like, you're going to complete the Iger Sanction. And it's <laughs> like, that's, it's so, I love it. I don't know why, but it's great. Uh, so the to- Iger Sanction, I thought this was going to be some, weird sci-fi movie based just based on that title alone mm-hmm. but it's it's part of like a long uh titling trend with like the born identity and um the Ipcris things file. like that the Ipcris file yeah uh the osterman weekend yeah i mean that would have been after this but yeah yeah but it's they're all kind of this like the silly uh spy espionage things the airbud golden receiver <laughs> The uh, the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, so yeah, George George sends him to work with his daughter named George. Right. I just connected that. Um, so she trains him to run. I I my notice. There's nothing like hiking with a beautiful woman dressed head to toe in denim. Uh, uh, this is where I made the note. It's some prime dad movie shit happening this is just like this feels like the movie you would watch if if uh the game gets preempted on a sunday afternoon or something it's like it's like the dream of all all dads everywhere being able to go on vacation by yourself (laughs) (laughs) and also there's a hot woman and there's of course there is yeah you can do whatever you want your best friend is it's your best friend's if you ever get tired she'll show you her boobs and then you'll get the energy to keep hiking Mm -hmm. 
I was going to say, it is, it is kind of, it, it's not really relevant because obviously George Kennedy's not interested in his daughter in this, in this movie, but Eastwood is. But uh, in uh, the eighties, there's a slasher parody called Wacko that uh, Vinegar Syndrome put out. And in that whole movie, <laughs> oh, is George Kennedy plays a cop who's obsessed with catching his daughter like when she's stripping down, like he's, obs- he's obsessed with her. It's very, it's played, it's played for laughs as like a spoof. It's like an airplane kind of thing, but it's, it's not the right, they're like naked gun, but it's just not the right joke. It's very weird. It, th- wow. That is, it's an incredibly upsetting recurring gag. It's not a thing that happens once. It is. And I believe it's the capper on the movie. Is yeah, it not? I think so. Yeah. It's like they're be- They decided someone decided while they were making wacko that that was their best joke. Yeah. <laughs> George Kennedy does slap a butt on a character who he calls Buns, and we later learn that her name is actually Buns, or she goes by Buns or answers so to it. you just assumed he was being the, sexist. Yes. <laughs> uh, how do you get a dog to hump on cue? Well, it starts when you pick a name for it. Okay. <laughs> None of us should oh, say the word. Yeah. I'm just gonna. Pre- I don't no. think we are, but none of us should say the word. The no dog is named a homophobic slur, and the one point a woman goes, "Oh, that's adorable," or something about yes. the dog's name. It's just <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I don't know why the dog starts humping Clint Eastwood's leg as its introduction to us. Uh. The but the dog belongs to Miles, who double crossed him earlier when they were right? in the military. Okay, because he like that's one of the photos that they look at in in his uh, house. Oh, I didn't. Okay, Miles is one of those guys. Yes, yeah. That's not the dead guy, and that's not George Kennedy. Right. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Yeah, this is weirdly like similar to the plot of the MacGruber TV show, actually. That's wow. That's really close. Also, MacGruber movie is, uh, I think, number two for my funniest movies that make me laugh hardest. It's Naked Gun one, MacGruber two. I think I, I those movies just crack me up, and I'm dying laughing. I've never, I have never gotten tired of MacGruber, and it's the one movie I always want to quote, but I never. You can't say those quotes in certain situations. No. But they always come to mind. No. But, like, god damn it. The, the, just thinking about the van scene in MacGruber, and then he, Tug! Tut! Tut! In the outtakes uh, on, I, I don't know if you've seen the outtakes on, uh, they're on the Blu-ray, but they're on YouTube, too. There's a bit where they go longer in that scene. And, like, he's in the rubble of the van after it blew up, and he's like, if you guys are just messing around, it's not funny. He just, <laughs> he just keeps going. He just stopped I'm, right there. I'm, I'm, I'm YouTubing MacGruber outtakes <laughs> right now, so I won't forget to watch them later. Oh, so good. Oh, God, that's... And it's like, Will Forte, um, Last Man on Earth was really hit or miss for me. But something about MacGruber is just, like, the perfect asshole character combined with 80s action movies that i love combined with like shitty hair metal i don't it's just a wonderful mix of all these awful things to create one perfect man actually fun fact i think in uh play misty for me he has a blah punk 
in his car, a black oh, radio. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just like just like McGruber. Yep. That's hilarious. <laughs> okay. I'm not gonna lie, that gag actually hurt me because uh I had a for a brief time, I had a Porsche 924 and the ballpunk stereo and it did not have a CD player. So I swapped it out with like a Sony from Best Buy and I had the people at Best Buy change my radio <laughs> in my Porsche to get rid of the very nice ballpunk so I could have this goofy ass Sony that like blasted lights in my face. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you guys tell me that you carried around your car stereo <laughs> like he does as a prop in every scene. Can I take your jacket, sir? Your car stereo? <laughs> nice try. <laughs> I did I did take the, the faceplate with me. It was that era of uh, pop the faceplate off and put it in its little case and then like slide it into the uh, interior liner of my black leather jacket. Andrew, you probably remember my, my black leather 90s jacket that I wore until like three years ago. Yeah, you used to be jacket rich. What happened? I don't know. Okay, this is this has been a source of concern for me lately. I only have like two jackets now. I don't know what happened. So you're telling me that you used to wear cringy clothes like black leather jackets, and then you got married, and suddenly your cringy clothes have disappeared. No, they mm. disappeared. They disappeared, and then I got the girlfriend, and then I got married. Oh. Yeah. So if I throw out, I should throw out all of my shitty clothes then, huh? Because <laughs> then I would probably get a girlfriend. To be fair, I, I have an entirely different wardrobe of shitty clothes now. Uh, but at least I, I color coordinate them normally. Like I, <laughs> oh, God. Record, color coordination. shitty clothes now. <laughs> I'm wearing, like, brown pants with bright blue t-shirts with yellow and brown Padres hats when I go out. It's not good. It's not Sean, good. no. I need help. I need help. No, it nice was... hats, though. I mean, I like the Padres Oh, hat. that brown that brown and gold Padres color? I'm very happy it's back. That's the one I got. Uh, well, when I, w- I went to Petco in, like, 2011, um, so it's been a while, but I had, that was, the, the I found, like, the vintage hat to buy. Nice. Um, at the time, and now, yeah, I love that. I love that look. Hopefully they figure the shit out this year if we have a season, because last year was rough. <sighs> this, <sighs> I, I will tell you, man, that 60-game season was like the most exciting season of baseball I've ever watched. It, that, because every game electric. mattered. Yeah, those games were electric. But I, I am fucking annoyed because P's and C's are supposed to report to spring training in like a week, and mm-hmm. those pitchers and catchers, they're not reporting. One and here, not we've, we're completely off the rails here, but um, it what sucks is like the way it's been characterized in the media is that you know the players are being unreasonable. At least like some of the the more like AP News ran article sites basically implying as much. And uh, yeah. the you know they, they don't have an, a, the, an agreement like a CBA, but um, they're all, the only reason they're not reporting is because of the lockout that the owners instituted, which they can lift at any time. They, they put the lockout in to try to encourage negotiations, and they're refusing to negotiate. So if they owners lift the lockout, ne- yeah. they can report. Owners have never had more money than they do now. There's no middle class in baseball. It's either like minimum contracts or gigantic whopper contracts. And yet, I, yeah, it bugs me when people try to throw shade on the players like they're the, they're the greedy assholes. It's like, do you realize you're talking about an old white man who has billions of dollars 
and you're ta- you're calling players greedy? Yeah, like do you, do you know what I would give to own like a major league team, like or at least partially? It would be that's like a lifelong dream of mine. Like I hope one day, one day I'm in a, I'm in a position to do that. So that's the Clint Eastwood reader. Get it yes. on Kindle Please. from Amazon. <laughs> I will be able to buy a major league baseball franchise if I sell <laughs> more hardcovers than dollars I need. To, or more paperbacks than, than than dollars I need. So like, yeah, like five billion. No, more than that. These teams are worth a lot of money. Something like that. I used to sell five billion paperback copies of the Clint Eastwood Reader. So right, we'll get you on the New York Times bestseller list. We'll get you up there with like the Kite Runner, and then uh, yeah, he'll get about five billion people to read it. Oh yeah, Frank McCourt used to own the Dodgers. He wrote books, <laughs> or I think it's a different Frank McCourt, but still. Wait, wait I was gonna say Tiz. <laughs> uh I'm pretty sure it's a different Frank McCord, but I've always okay. I'm realizing I'm I'm realizing this now, like in real time. Because <laughs> I always thought they were the same one. It, it can't be the same guy. I mean Angela's so, actually co- sold a lot of money. Sold sold a lot of books. Yeah. Sold a lot of copies. So Irish American author Frank McCourt. Irish American actor George Kennedy oh, yeah, is okay. climbing around with Clint Eastwood. And uh, they climbed to the top of a spire. Uh, and Ben, I, I, his name's Ben, right? Yes. Uh, I like that Ben puts a sixer of beer in Clint Eastwood's pack to make him carry the beer to the top. That was great. That Ooh. made me laugh out loud. That is, a, that is based on a true thing that happened, or it inspired a true thing that happened on the set, where uh, the actor that they interviewed, the guy who played Freitag, he, um, they, they were filming one day, and when they got to the top, they had uh, champagne. And he was like, who brought champagne? He's like, it's in your back. And he even <laughs> says it was warm and they drank it. Like it's every beat of it is the same. I was like, oh, well, so if they, so they filmed this after or they filmed it before. I don't know. But I thought that was a nice touch. Now, granted, he may have been misremembering something from the movie as something that happened to him because he's very old now. Not as old as Clint Eastwood, but pretty old. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's a nice, it's a nice touch either way, whether it's true or not. <laughs> you know what else is a nice touch? George's sex touch <laughs> because Clint and George are having sex now and uh, this part confused me she injects him with morphine and then starts punching him because as we find out later Miles paid George to try to kill him maybe she was just supposed to drug him so Miles could come in and kill him in a spectacular fashion but he's like, she, he was probably going to make me OD. And it's like, okay, well, then why didn't you just give George enough morphine to make him OD on that first injection? Why, yeah. are, we, why are we drugging this man twice to kill him? Just, just kill him the first time. I'm not saying any of this is good, good plots on the bad guy's part. <laughs> it, it, it is all too convoluted and uh, silly. It does. I, get, yeah, it gets to the point where, like, by the, by the end, like, you know, this, the first time I watched it, like, I remember... The, re- the reveals as they come about who's responsible for what are like were, were a lot more effective the first time I watched it than they were this time. And I think that this time I just got kind of lost in the in the labyrinthine, you know, uh, machinations of the of the plot a little bit. This twist got me. I I don't I never look for twists when I watch movies. My brain, I think, just tends to stay in the present with the scene that's going on. I I usually don't try to predict the ending of a movie 
too far in advance. So it's very easy for me to get surprised by twists and things. But uh, this was a good one. Maybe I just didn't want to believe that George Kennedy could be this guy. Yeah. It's uh, two, two good twists. Two, two movies with good twists. Uh, is this like this whole middle section before they get to the, the dangerous climbing feels like this is the reason they made the movie. It, it's like, this would be the fun part, like climbing on the, on the icy mountain, dangerous and, and uncomfortable, but climbing out like in these desert places, uh, when he's doing the, um, hand over hand to like go across the gap and all that kind of stuff. I'm just like, is this just so Clint Eastwood can be a badass and show off all this, all their climbing he learned? Yeah. I think, well, and, uh, in Monument Valley, too. I mean, I'm pretty sure all yeah. of it. I know the totem poles there. Uh, I'm pretty sure everything they filmed was in Monument Valley. And it's just like, I mean, yeah, like in, in terms of the significance of Clint Eastwood, such a towering figure in the Western genre, summiting the highest point in Monument Valley. You know, it's not a Western, but it's still pretty, you know, the, 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 the significance, the, the symbolism of it isn't lost on me. And just to state, if the entire reason is so he can cosplay being a spy. I am fine with it. Like it's a blast to watch this. Yeah. I, I do wonder if this was like a, like it feels like it was conceived of as like a, 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 a like in the vein of James Bond. And I, I, uh-huh. I know there were like spy movies, like, you know, the Matt Helm movies around this era too. And like the, um, the Michael Caine ones. Um, but the, um, uh, I, what I think is interesting is this is so much stronger, even though it is totally weird in the same way than those, uh, early Roger Moore ones that were the only mm-hmm. like alternative of, of anything similar at this time. And they also like prioritize like real stunt work the same way those do. Um, and I mean, I, pr- I personally, I like this more than like the spy who loved me. It's probably better than all the Roger Moore bots as a result, but whoa, I, whoa, most people whoa, probably whoa. feel that way. That is like f- five other conversations, okay. Andrew. Okay. Well, I've never seen any Roger Moores or barely any Bonds outside of Goldeneye and Casino Royale. So we'll have to get you back on the episode, do some Bond. Oh, I'm some down, bonding. Yeah. Um, Always down for Bond. When he takes Miles out into the desert. Uh, and they have their their chase across the land, and uh, he shoots the the bodyguard like shoots him right in the neck with a with a shotgun. Apparently, <laughs> it seems before that though, when it's it like a very Simpsons moment for me when he turns the headlights on the car to yeah. emulate brake lights, and they're like, "Oh, what a dirty trick!" That there's the Simpsons episode where it's um, Marge and her friend are taking off and they're driving down the d- desert and Wiggum's after mm-hmm. them and they turn off the headlights and Wiggum's like, oh no, it's a ghost car. Or <laughs> <laughs> um, but the way he does this U-turn, first of all, I love that you can see the car, the tire tracks from the previous take yes. <laughs> in the, where he does the U-turn. But this felt like uh, a medieval joust between two cars where he flips it back around and now you got these two cars coming head on head and they're going to pass each other at the driver's window and you got each guy pointing his weapon at the other and Clint Eastwood wins but really really cool <laughs> it's Sean did you think at all of Blacktop Wasteland when this scene was happening uh, I did not but now I am for sure 
Uh, I also thought of Dune because when he kicks up all that dust, I was just like, desert power. <laughs> spice. <laughs> More spice. Hey, 10, uh, 10 Academy Award nominations today. That's that's fun. For Dune. Oh, it has 10? Yeah. That's a lot. That so, is... And, and not director, but, you know. Really? Yeah. That's up there. Like, isn't the record 12? I think the record might be like 14 now, but I know because oh, okay. Power of the Dog got 12. Okay. Uh, I was going to say, I like that he leaves Miles out in the desert to just die of dehydration, but mm-hmm. he lets the dog get back in the truck and takes the dog with him. But he calls him a little pecker. Hey, it's a better name. That's true. Better name. <laughs> it's a much, much better name. <laughs> uh, I, I like that as soon as he dispatches Miles, they're like, fuck it, we're we're in Switzerland or whatever. Like, we're going straight to the mountain. We're done with that part of the story. Yeah, it's like the editor the looked at his runtime and was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. We're like an hour and a half into this thing and we haven't even gone to Switzerland yet. We better move. <laughs> <laughs> so they're planning the route. And uh, I like the part where they talk about they're planning a new route. And one guy says, I consider it self-defeating to plan a route for retreat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, I consider it uh, stupid not to or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Oh, uh, and, and he's going to learn, too. I mean, he's going to find out. Uh, the, the. What is his name? George Kennedy's character. Ben. Ben. Um, I thought it was, his name was John up until like the very end of this movie. And then I was like, oh, it's Ben. Um, but he warned Hemlock that one of the other climbers wives like he talks about how hot she is. And then there, there's this like little tiny subplot of her having the hots for him. That doesn't seem to go anywhere, but she just has the hots for him. <laughs> Apparently she's been fucking one of the other climbers as yeah. well. She's just, Oh, cause this, he calls her a this man. Woman trap. is insatiable. Yes. And I'm like, what one world class climber isn't enough for her? She has to bed the, uh, the entire team. <laughs> well, if you bet, These guys if you are supposed to all, be the best. Like a, yeah, prize. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Jemima shows up, which I I like that they did not just discard her character in the beginning. And I was surprised to see her traveling yeah. with us here. I was really happy that she gets to like. She was an agent for Dragon, but now she seems to be on her own and is just there because she's worried about John or Hemlock. Is his name John? His name is Jonathan Hemlock. Jonathan Hemlock, okay. Hemlock is an insane name. Oh, yeah. (laughs) When somebody makes a joke about it being bitter at one point or him being bitter at one point and they're like, like Hemlock. (laughs) I'm like, that's great. Uh, That one henchman who's also in Switzerland uh, gets into a fight with Clint Eastwood and he goes, careful, John, I have a black belt or whatever. And then he just holds his hands up like Clooney did in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where it's just like the most absurd fighting stance you've ever uh-huh. seen. It's, uh, karate cannot stand up to good old-fashioned American punching. <laughs> uh, so Clint Eastwood takes the money that he's owed and tells the guy to get out of there. And this is where we learn that it was all a setup, right? They let the enemies steal a fake biological weapon so that they set up the sanctions so that it looks real and 
Again, like there's so many twists, so many (laughs) twists on this thing. And at that point, I'm like, wait, is there even a guy on the expedition that they're supposed to that he's supposed to be after? Or is the whole thing a a fugazi, fugazi, what have you? This movie Uh, has so many twists. It's like a cocktail made entirely of lemon juice. It's a lot of twists. It's a lot of twists. That's a funnier joke than you laughed at, Josh. <laughs> uh, you you owed me a bigger laugh. I, I'm getting you back for laughing at one of your puns earlier. <laughs> it's it all bounces I've never out. Made, of me. I've never made a pun on this show. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, when they're ready to go up the mountain, George Kennedy is like upset that it's cold. Ostensible mountaineering expert. Ben well, he, he's mostly is, a obviously a desert guy. That he has yeah. desert power. Yes. <laughs> he hasn't called. Well, I do like when power. we when we cut back and forth, especially in the second half of this climb, when the storm hits and it's snowy and it's covered in ice. When we cut back to Ben looking through the telescope, it looks like it's about seventy two degrees and beautiful down at yeah. the the base camp. Uh, do they really just leave their tents behind? What? They just leave their tents behind when they go to climb up the face. Yeah. They're, they just leave their tents, like, at the bivouac. I was like, that seems crazy. Do you not need a tent on the mountain? Maybe there's nowhere they were to... Just, they were just sleeping out in the open. How many nights did they spend on this thing? It seemed like they were up there for three days. That sounds about right. I didn't clock but, it yeah, I'm with you, Josh. It looked like they were just sleeping completely exposed to the elements yeah i i'm sorry uh several times during this this movie i was like no no way in hell i wouldn't go up that high sean doesn't like worm shit so we're never going caving i don't like heights so we're not going mountain climbing uh you know it's funny i was like i could do parts of this because i do like the views and everything it's i could do the hiking parts where you're not climbing a vertical mount as soon as you have to strap in and get out the spikes and hammers and shit i'm out but as far as just hiking up a mountain yeah i'd do it yeah i I mean i'll go on a nice walk i thought uh clint says looks like we um as there's a waterfall he says it looks like we have some wet work ahead of us Mm -hmm. and i thought that was a fun double entendre because i believe being a hitman is also called wet work (laughs) yes And he said that earlier to Dragon, and Dragon was like, called him such an uncivilized word or something. And he's like, oh, it's murder for hire, sanctioning, wet work, it's all the same thing. Yeah, I think in, um, in Horrible Bosses, I think they have that joke where some, they, they, try, they contract someone for wet work. Oh, yes. You, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a urinator, though. <laughs> <laughs> when George... Kennedy is looking at them through the telescope and those two tourists walk up to like, oh, we'll pay you to use your telescope. Let my wife look. And he goes, either of you friggin vampires touch this telescope. You're going to need surgery to get it out of your ass. (laughs) (laughs) And this is where dude gets hit by a falling rock to the helmet, knocks him unconscious. Uh, Harrowing stunt here as this actor is dangling over the edge of this cliff by one rope. This is the thing that terrifies me about this movie is that I don't see any way that they could have shot any of this safely or, Mm -hmm. you know, 
movie magic. I, I don't see any way that's possible. This all looks death-defying. Yeah, I think it, it may not have been like the actual Iger, if that is, even is a real mountain. I'm actually not sure. But like wherever they shot it, like it, it, they're up there and it looks fucking terrifying. Josh is on it. It says it was filmed on location on the Eiger Mountain and Zurich in Switzerland. Okay. Well, there, there you go. go. But don't don't trust me on monuments because literally um when I saw that first Spider-Man trailer uh back in 2001 uh that he where he webs up between the twin towers and catches the helicopter, uh, it they played it before uh, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, when I went to the theater, uh, and my response was, yeah, right, like there's two buildings the same size that happen to be right next to each other. <laughs> Honestly, a totally fair reaction. And, you know, because it was a bad idea, it turned out. Yes. <laughs> uh, I had never heard of the World Trade Center until September 11th. Just was yep. not a part of my life being from Southern California. Except I do remember the Simpsons episode where Homer's trying to go to the bathroom and he's at yes. the top of one of the World Trade Centers and they tell him bathroom's out of order. You got to go to the other one. You everything, cla, cla. everything is just like Simpsons and Seinfeld in my brain. This is, <laughs> this is how I've related to the world these 35 years. Uh, the Oh, the one dude, um, I did not, once they put on the helmets, especially, there's two of the climbers that I'm like, I, I don't know which one is, is French and which one's no, they're, they're, Swiss they're, or whatever. Those two people are the same person. There's yeah. dark beard guy, and yes. then there's two blondish people that yep. are the same human. Uh, but the one guy, when he goes to cut the frayed end off the rope, like, the way he's doing it is real shady, and then he kind of gives like a half answer to him. As if something is up, like he's trying to hide something. I'm like, why would he do that? Also, why? it looked like he was cutting that rope in the middle of the rope, not near the frayed end. It yes. looks like I thought he was cutting Clint Eastwood loose and was yep. about to like push him off the cliff or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of these. Uh, the one where he he grabs him later, or one of the the blondies grabs him um, when the rock fall is happening, and they're they're pulling the the guy back up after he gets the concussion. Um, that great like. It's only a two-second shot of the hand, like it's going to push him off the edge, but then it grabs him and pulls him back up. I like, yeah, that's, we don't get many POV shots in either of these movies. That's yeah. one of the few, I think, but I, I did like that one at the hand coming through the foreground. Uh, so they decide to keep climbing with the concussed dude, and <laughs> the snow hits, and that dude just casually dies in his sleep, and these people seem to, uh, I think these four four dudes who went up this mountain were expecting at least one of them was going to die as seems mm -hmm. to be their attitude like they don't seem surprised disappointed anything the uh but before he dies the concussed dude is metal as fuck how cool would it be to be climbing a mountain in switzerland covered in blood <laughs> he's just like <laughs> he's got viking spirit in him and until he dies of it but uh, you're probably pretty excited for the Northmen then, because I'm, oh, I'm, I'm very sure excited Robert Eggers is going to film people covered in blood hiking over mountains. That's <laughs> what I've been looking forward to this whole time. <laughs> uh, the concussed kite dies, storm hits. Oh, and they have to. So 
Hemlock has been up this mountain three times and has never summited. I, I that did surprise me. Like this movie pulls the plug on summiting, which maybe that was logistical reasons. Like it was just way too hard to get actors and cameras up there, or what? But I I did like that was. I didn't see this turn coming where they're like, all right, that guy died. So we have to go back down now. Mm-hmm. And it, it seemed very un-Hollywood for them not to summit this mountain. Yeah. I think in uh, the other Trevanian book that I read, he, there is like a very similar thing, but underground and like this cave system that he's never fully explored that he winds up fully exploring in the, the course of his exploits. And it's like he he gets to conquer it uh, while he's like killing bad guys. And so I kind of thought this was going to be the same where he gets to his like, this is his personal triumph. But no, apparently uh, being with ladies is his personal triumph. Yeah, the way this movie ends, it ends on a really, I don't want to say anticlimactic because I did think this was a very like thrilling conclusion to this movie. Mm-hmm. But again, just so anti-hero of this guy doesn't kill the bad guy. The bad guy is his friend, so he ends up forgiving him. Everyone else who wasn't a bad guy ends up dying on this hike <laughs> regardless. Uh, it, it just, this this really, really threw me for a loop. When when all three of those dudes went over the cliff, I was pretty fucking shocked, man. <laughs> yes. Shocked. And that shot of them going over... Yep. Whatever they sent, those dummies over the edge. Seeing that impact on the rocks below, god damn. <laughs> and just them going over the edge, and then like the the camera, there's the shot, like the camera is over the edge looking down. And so both the movie and the movie making terrify me at that point because it's some revenant type shit, right? Where you're like, how else do you film that except for you hang your ass over the edge of a ledge and someone else like you're rigged up to something and there's a camera like that seems I'm I'm never doing that. There's never going to be that cool of a shot in anything I make because I'm not going to do that. I don't know. The only thing I can think of that off the top of my head right now is the end of crank. Neville Dean Taylor had Jason Statham up on a helicopter and people were wired. But uh-huh. they were literally flying a helicopter over L.A. with the actors hanging out of it. Yeah, well, that's that was crazy. Crank, uh, well, just just give us more crank, please, <laughs> please, <laughs> just more crank. That's all I want. I think the, I don't know if there was like a falling out, but I know those guys split as a directing team. Um, well, it's it's probably not good for anybody's psyche to be involved in a ghostwriter movie. Well, I think. Um, like especially now that you know the most the most successful movies are like you know sequels to movies made like 10 or 15 years after the fact or longer or further you know know, uh a further distance i feel like we could realistically get another crank um statham's big i mean statham has way bigger star now than he was back then with the fast and furious stuff that he's done and they always said that they wouldn't do Crank 3, they'd just go straight to, straight to Crank X. Crank 10. I, want, I don't know what you would do beyond adrenaline and electricity, but I, I want to have, have one where I want to find out, yeah. Crank has to be drowning constantly. 
the only way he can live is like if he has a fishbowl of water on his head because he they replaced his lungs with fish lungs and so now crank has to be in water the whole movie <laughs> well, that's the that's the abyss the ed harris suit that is the abyss God damn it. <laughs> i love the abyss so much i can't wait it's getting that official blu-ray release supposedly supposedly like, fingers crossed yeah. supposedly he's finally gonna fucking get it off his ass and stop making eight avatars and just give us what we want which is the abyss please jim please <laughs> i call him jim because we're close friends <laughs> Good buddy, Jim. So, Iger Sanction. Speaking of good Everyone buddies. falls off. Yeah. Ben, it turns out Ben was the guy all along. And Ben helped Miles because Miles helped get George off of drugs. Which is weird because Miles is basically a drug slinger. He slings yes. pharmaceutical drugs, but he can also help you get off them at the same time. So... Uh, Clint Eastwood seems very forgiving of this, and the last line of the movie is Jemima and him hanging out, and she says, John, you didn't really sanction all three of them, did you? Uh, movie over. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't really quite get that last line. I, I, I just don't really, I don't know if that was supposed to be like a little tongue-in-cheek joke at the end, or... I just, I didn't know what the intention was of that. Or, like, is she still working for Dragon and really wants to know? Because the letter from Dragon is like, well, we assume since you couldn't figure out, we couldn't figure out who the Mark was, you just killed everybody. Yeah. And so you're you're safe and here's all your money and here's your IRS letter and et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's one of those few times where like, oh, the villain you did what you were set out to do, and the villain's like, okay, here's your freedom now. You're yeah. free to go. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I definitely don't... I think some of it, too, is, like, I think he's just sort of kind of kind of crushed by the fact that, like, his friend was doing... Like, even though he lets him go, like, I think it, it kind of sours the whole experience for him, so I feel like it's kind of a pyrrhic victory at the end, mm -hmm. and it's like, they're asking this question that's, like, ultimately, like, meaningless to him. Like, he doesn't fucking care about these people, like, at that point. Like... Well, and he had the speech earlier uh, and if it does come from the novel it's it's got to be like the one kind of sincere thing where uh, he says everybody sucks he's like our side their side they're all bad guys uh, they would all sell you out you know nobody has our best interest at heart like it doesn't matter what side you work for um, they, they all suck <laughs> yeah so what do you rate this movie Sean and do you have any I, other mountaineering movies to put it next to? Uh, I enjoyed this one a lot. I'm sure there's mountaineering movies. I'd say go watch Ravenous. There's some mountain shit in Ravenous. There's not a lot, but there's enough. And it's just Ravenous is my soul. It's it's <laughs> everything. So go watch that. This movie was bonkers. I But I really enjoyed it. I thought it was so convoluted that it was a fun mess, like a big old bowl of messy spaghetti or something <laughs> I, I give this one four out of five i thoroughly enjoyed myself especially the last 40 minutes when we're in switzerland and this i didn't expect this movie to make me feel like on the edge of my seat but this was one of the more intense sequences i've seen in a movie in a while josh how about you 
Yeah, I think I'm going to go the same four out of five because it like I am a sucker for almost all of the Bond films. And this really is like, what if Bond, but American? Um, and, you know, he's a little more crass and uh, throws haymakers instead of knowing like good fighting, <laughs> but he still comes out on top. Um, and the it's got to be said, like the location photography on both of these films is just some spectacular stuff. It makes me think that uh, like that's what Eastwood was responding to a lot or pulling from maybe from uh, a lot of his earlier films uh, that he had been in. Right. Cause that's, he talked about like learning uh, things from being on set, what he wanted and what he didn't want uh, out of a movie making experience. And so I think the idea of like, Hey man, we're just going to kind of travel around and shoot a bunch of cool looking shit seems very much in Clint Eastwood's style, much more than like, we're going to sit down and have a talk about motivation with the actors. <laughs> we're just going to like, look at this, this great, uh, Vista. Yeah. I, uh, four out of five here as well. Just, uh, I'm actually surprised everyone's four. I, I was like coming in thinking, I'm going to be the weirdo over here saying it's like an amazing, uh, like strange movie. I mean, I'm not saying it's like a masterpiece, but uh, I'm glad we all liked it. I'm glad you guys both enjoyed it. Um, Weird enough to be really fun. Whereas <laughs> Play Misty for me, it's it's good, but it's it's more serious. It's not as weird. Mm -hmm. But the, but both of these movies are like weird for Clint, like when you think of Clint Eastwood, it's like I wouldn't have picked him to like both of these movies seem strange for him, especially now. For sure. Yeah, Clint Eastwood, James Bond movie, and a Clint Eastwood as uh, the Fog character. What's her name? Stevie? Stevie Wayne. Yeah, these are not roles I would expect from him. I just think of him as Dirty Harry and Grand Torino and the man with no name. Just a bunch of guys that are, god damn it, clenching their jaws and pissed off at the world. Yeah, in this one, he's, uh, uh, I have an order for the dentist. Of, uh... <laughs> 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 How are really not, where, where is that voice coming from? Uh. <laughs> yeah, if if you told me that um, uh, Eastwood and George Kennedy would be like a buddy pair in a really fun spy movie, I would not have believed you, frankly. So that just about wraps us up here. Josh, do you have anything to plug? Anything you've read or watched recently that you're really into? I mean, apart from the Clint Eastwood reader by Andrew Ford, which I haven't actually read yet because uh, the the Kindle version comes out on the 15th, I believe. It does. February 15th. Yeah. February 15th. Um, but I am looking forward. I think that I will get a physical copy as well because I want to put you on my shelf um, next to Adam Naiman. Uh, I like it. It belongs there. So, and I'll be like, I know that guy. Actually, you can go next to Jim Ridley, too. That's very sweet. Uh, Andrew, you want to plug your book again? What, <laughs> what, the title? Kindle? What? It's on, it's, it's the Clint Eastwood Reader. Uh, and I should, I should say, uh, David Caldwell did the artwork for it, and it turned out great. So, mm -hmm. it, for that reason alone, it is worth having on the shelf. And I, even though it doesn't, I, I think the Kindle copy is probably just cooler in general, <laughs> but no, <I'm> <laughs> um, 
the uh, I, I highly recommend buying the Kindle copy, but you know, if uh, the, the paperback is, is, I'm really happy with how it's turned out from what I've seen for, of it so far. Um, and uh, there are there are some fun little surprises in, in it that are that are very very goofy uh, that uh, I've already gotten one alarmed phone call from my mother about. So I'll let everybody <laughs> else find them. Uh, so uh, I think they're fun. Um, and then uh, yeah, other than that, um, the reenactment's still out on uh, VOD. We haven't gotten any uh, updates yet for uh, other streaming platforms, but we do have a DVD. Um, it's on Amazon. Uh, I think it's the only place I know of for sure that you can get it. It does take a minute to ship, but, um, I've got some extra copies here too. So, um, so, so if you know, Andrew, just if you know me personally, um, I'm just letting you know, I've got a bunch of copies of it on DVD. I'm not going to give you one. I just wanted to let you know. Um, but yeah, the, the, the Clint reader, I, I watched a bunch of his movies over like three and a half years and, uh, uh, I just think he's a really great filmmaker that there isn't a lot of people who take him seriously or give him the credit he deserves for being something other than a, I don't know, cultural, like a, you know, conservative right-wing, you know, dipshit. I mean, he's much smarter and more empathetic and just more wise about things. Um, and you can learn a lot from his work, I think. Uh, not just as a filmmaker, but I think just uh, he's very, like, a uh, very empathetic uh, filmmaker. Um, and I think there's, I just think his movies only get better, you know, with age. He's had a crazy, crazy career. I mean, it's incredible that he's still with us. And we're really lucky to still have him. And I hope he keeps making stuff. I can't believe he's still going. The, how old he looked in Misty. And that movie was 51 years ago. He's, he's <laughs> older than Christ. Willie Mays. That's my, that's my go-to. <laughs> he's older than Willie Mays. <laughs> well, it's February 8th. But there's still time to watch a Christmas movie. So I'm going to tell you, watch Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale. <laughs> it's from Finland, I think. I can't remember. But it's just a real delightful movie with a lot of heart. And it's a lot of fun. So check that one out. Uh, that'll wrap us up for this week. Uh, we have no plans yet for our next episode. So stay tuned for that. You can join our Discord if you want to get some information about the upcoming shows. Or just talk to us about what you think we've said that is completely wrong. Uh, that'll do it. So, see you in two weeks, everyone. Be kind to yourselves. Be kind to your neighbors. Take care. And I'm gonna say we'll see you in two weeks again because I got my outro backwards. Bye. Bye. Hey, I have an editor's note. Two weeks from now, the episode will be Seven Samurai by Kurosawa and Master and Commander. So, see you then.